There are a lot of people out there walking around with complex PTSD and they might know they have it, they're talking about it, they're kind of doing something about it, but mostly they're just suffering with it. They're not getting better. Be someone who's lived your whole life afraid that you're gonna become one of those people, like stuck in your trauma, never being happy or loved or fulfilled or financially stable. And granted, it's hard to know when you're first starting out on your healing, what's gonna work for you. But if you never really tried, you're not gonna find out. On some level, even though you work hard and you struggle with this, you might feel that you've kinda of half-assed your life and your healing in particular, and maybe you haven't taken the steps that you know that you would need to take to actually heal and change your life. I wanna encourage you to take your healing seriously, to double down on it, so that you can heal. And I'm gonna lay out 10 things that you can do if you're ready to move forward with that, all right? Obviously not all of these will apply to you, but these are the 10 things that worked for me. And I'm gonna tell you what they were. And when you've heard everything that I'm gonna to explain to you about them, you can pick one or two. You can pick the most important ones. And I would encourage you to take the ones that are causing you the most pain, but also that are actually fixable for you right now. Pick things that you can win at as your first goals. You might be able to hear there's like three chainsaws going outside right now. It's a full-on Texas chainsaw massacre out there. So I think they're gonna be like using those all day. There's not really anything I could do about it. And I wanted to tape this video anyway, because I wanted you to have it. So number one, you can do this one. Learn what complex PTSD is. Not just what you've heard on the internet, not just what other people say about it, and not focusing all your energy on what might be the diagnosis of the people who hurt you. That's not the same thing as understanding what's going on with your brain. Learning about your brain, about dysregulation and what that does for you, uh, emotional regulation, and then when you have a sense of yourself, then it's a great time to start learning what other people did to heal. Number two, when you look at yourself and how you're doing, be willing to notice some of the problems that maybe have nothing to do with trauma. Now it's true, CPTSD can make it hard to focus. It, uh, it can make it hard to be consistent, to be kind and considerate as you wanna be. It might make it hard to stay present. It might have damaged your relationships. It might have damaged your health, okay? So all those things are out there. But everybody has a couple problems that are just kind of ordinary human problems. So it could be something like maybe you're often late. A lot of people struggle with that. You don't have to be traumatized. Trauma could be implicated in that. But sometimes that's one of the things that you just have. And the reason I love the problems that are just kind of like normal person problems is because they're a little easier to solve. You don't have to heal your brain necessarily to get that going. It could be that you need to keep your kitchen cleaner, that the whole kitchen like smells like garbage all the time and when people come over, you're ashamed. I know how trauma can drive that kind of thing, but it's a, it's a problem that anybody might have and it's a solvable problem. I love low-hanging fruit problems, things that you can solve quickly and get a little win. Number three, prepare to move your stories about the abuse and neglect that happened to you out of present time looping thoughts and into what I call the memory bucket. You can imagine there's a bucket. So it's a different thing, isn't it, when something that happened in the past is still activated in your mind and you, you get emotions every time you think about it. You might start crying or you might fill, out, fill up with adrenaline and your heart pounds. It might scatter your thoughts. So that's called an electric thought and it's activated. When a thought is in, when a memory goes into the memory bucket, it's, it's deactivated. You can remember it. If anybody asks you a question about it, you can remember all the same details about it. 
but it doesn't trigger this huge physiological and neurological response in you. So it's the memory bucket. Get ready, one thing you could do is start to write about it, to start being truly like open-minded that you could be okay without this. And if you, if you feel anxious at the thought of like surrendering your fear and resentment about the world, I would just say do it a tiny bit at a time. Do a little bit at a time and see what happens and just see if when you surrender fear about something, does it incapacitate you? Does it make you a doormat? It's not been my experience that it does. In fact, it makes me more empowered. It makes me more clear about when something dangerous is in my presence, when I need to act on it. So you can try that for yourself, little bits, all right? Number four is stop trying to make other people not trigger you, <laughs> all right? So if you get very triggered by people, and pretty much everybody with complex PTSD gets triggered by people, and that's what makes people hard. That's what makes us have a tendency to want to isolate or keep people at arm's length. Interactions get so triggering. So there's a misunderstanding that if we could just get other people to stop behaving the way they do or saying what they say or making us feel the way we feel, then we would be okay. And sometimes that's true, um, but it's usually not true that you even could, that they could stop triggering you even if they wanted to with all their hearts. The central problem is that we get triggered. Powered approach is to maintain your control over that to learn to calm your triggers. Now, when you can learn to calm your triggers, for one thing, you're not so triggered and you become perceptive and you can begin to tell if someone in your presence who's been hard for you to hang around, are they actually a great big problem for you or are they okay? It's just that you have triggers. That's called discernment. That's one of the biggest things that we lose with CPTSD is that ability to discern. There's so much confusion walking around like, is it just me or is this person a real jerk? You can begin to have discernment about that. And what a relief. What a relief to be clear like, this person doesn't belong in my life. This person I love. They're awesome. And I'm going to make, make this relationship better and safer for them by calming my triggers. All right. So you have the power to do that. The great thing about learning to calm your triggers is that you become flexible you become able to hang out with a variety of different people. You can be in all kinds of circumstances. You don't have to be so particular and have so-called boundaries about, I don't do this, I don't eat that, I never let people say this, I can't stand hearing it, you know. You can start to be flexible and just sort of let life happen around you and be discerning about it, mostly okay with it, but knowing when it's time to step out of a situation if you need to, have a boundary, right? You can do that. CPTSD gets held back here. If you have calm triggers, it cannot get the better of you because that's basically what it is. All the bad things that come with CPTSD, the cognitive, the memory, the relationship problems, right? The health problems, the headaches, the stress, all of that can't get activated if you don't get triggered. So there's your superpower, okay? If you were to do one thing, just start bringing it in and learn how to notice when you're triggered and bring it down. Learning to notice dysregulation and a triggered state in ourselves, that's a huge piece of what I teach in my eight-week coaching intensive. And that's a program that I teach now and then. You may have seen it. Um, and we go all the way through, you know, what happened, dysregulation, triggers, disconnection from people, self-defeating behavior, learning to own our healing. And finally, in like the eighth week, we're working on balance into your life all the stuff that was suppressed by all the stuff earlier in the chain where you were too dysregulated to connect with people or do what you're capable of doing. 
The point of our healing, it's not just to feel better. You do have to feel better. You do need that. You deserve it. But when you do feel better, the real point of healing can begin. And that's you becoming yourself and delivering the gifts that you have to bring to the world. All right. If you're interested in that coaching program, you can, that'll be down there with all the things down below in the description section. All right. Number five, this one's kind of high level Jedi stuff. Stop trash talking the people who you choose to have in your life. It's very common for people who don't have CPTSD to just throw labels, you know, they're a narcissist, they're toxic. But if you really want to heal, if you want to double down on your healing, I encourage you to stop using those labels on people and instead just start noticing whatever you call it, the thing that other people do or have that's so troubling for you. The thing you're focusing on your healing is the way that you get troubled, the way that your emotions rise up or you get dysregulated, right? That's the part. That's the part where you actually have influence over what happens next. So whatever you want to call them there, if you've ever had luck telling somebody, Hey, you're a narcissist. I think you really ought to read this book or something that never works. <laughs> you probably noticed that it never works. People are going to be people You have to keep these people in your life. The more you recover, the more you're going to get clear about who should stay and who should go. But, Focusing on yourself is always going to be your superpower. Focusing on, oh, this is where I get triggered. Because if you get triggered around somebody who is, I don't know, a psychopath, you're going to be really defenseless against whatever harm they're going to do to you. You want to be grounded. You want to be lucid, clear-headed, clear-eyed, perceptive, so that you can make good decisions about how to proceed when somebody begins to treat you badly. And if somebody's treating you really well, of course, you want to be at your best. You want to be able to open your heart and enjoy that relationship. Six, stop clinging to bad relationships that make you miserable. Now I got to bring this in, in any discussion of what it means to double down on your healing, staying in bad relationships and hemorrhaging all your energy and your cognition to a situation where you're fighting all the time, you're being treated in an abusive manner, um, you're, you're being disrespected, <laughs> you're sad all the time. It's going to be really hard to heal your life in those circumstances. So I understand there are relationships where there's, there's an obligation, a duty. If, if, if you have children who are minors for the time being, have no financial means to get out. And I mean none, because I really think that living humbly is a lot better than staying in an abusive situation. Or if these are parents or family members who, you know, have dementia and even though they're treating you badly and it's miserable, you, you're honoring them by caring for them and making sure they're cared for. All right. So I'm going to set that aside. I'm not really talking about situations that are complicated by duty and promises. I'm talking about things like boyfriends and girlfriends who don't treat you well and who suck the life out of you and who are going to prevent you from moving forward with your healing. All right. Number seven is the same thing, but for jobs day in work that makes you miserable unless your life depends on it. There are times when we all got to do what we got to do to get the paycheck, right? But not forever. Don't let that be forever. And if the paycheck is not the problem right now, I want you to ask yourself, is being miserable at work the way that you avoid facing responsibility for your life? And I talk about this very directly because it's something that I've had to face myself too. There was a lot of time when I was still at the effect of CPTSD where if I weren't miserable, I would have to notice immediately that there was this giant hole in my life where 
where close relationships were supposed to be, that I had superficial relationships. I was getting my self-esteem off the fact that I had a job. I was not happy, and I didn't like the way I was treated, and I stayed years working for an awful boss, years. And, and then I bounced around to a couple of awful bosses. The problem was in here. The problem was in, in the work that I was accepting for myself, in my unwillingness to make changes and to do the growth and the learning that was gonna be necessary for me to take that step up. And it's hard, and I, I had to do it as a single mom. I ended up completely unemployed as a single mom. And I just wanna say, I realize I don't have the worst problems that anybody's ever had, but to a large degree, if I could do it, if I could get going and create a way to make a living that suited me and that was a respectful, self-loving, <laughs> creative, enjoyable kind of work for myself, I just think a lot of you can too. And for those of you who, are, who, who have other extenuating circumstances that are keeping you stuck, feel the truth of what I'm saying. Let it guide you. Don't ever let um, a sense of giving up or a sense of avoidance hold you back from moving forward to the kind of relationships and work where you belong, where you belong. All right, number eight, detach from the belief that you passively just magically attract bad people. I hear people say this all the time. I attract narcissists. Well, acknowledge that the issue is not really who is attracted to you. The issue is who you get attracted to, who you tolerate, who you date, who you sleep with, that is the problem. And that's a much better problem to have than some sort of magic pheromone attraction to sick people. And it's true, like people who want to exploit others, they might look for people who are weak, people who have no boundaries, people who are not defending themselves. So no, don't be that person, don't be that person who can tolerate it. I think that uh, bad people are seeking out people to exploit a little less than sometimes they're given credit for. They're just knocking around looking for people who will tolerate them. And that's kind of, you know, that's not really any different than anybody else. So it's your tolerance, it's your boundaries, it's your red light detector that have to switch on. If you're gonna double down on your healing, you're gonna have to do this. You're gonna have to take responsibility that you are the gatekeeper. And you may have heard me say, you know, I attract mosquitoes, but they, I don't marry them. <laughs> And that, I, I don't, what I attract has nothing to do with what I attach to, okay? All right, number nine, if you have addictive behaviors, make recovery your first priority. Alcohol, drugs, food, pornography, spending, all that stuff. Your healing will get an enormous boost when you allow yourself to experience life's ups and downs and show up for it and not escape it. I have CPTSD too. I know how tempting it is to try to grab on and control things or run away from them or just get into some kind of oblivion. And it's almost universal with people with CPTSD. It's gonna take one form or another. And just because it's not heroin doesn't mean it's not terrible. I'm not gonna get into all the means that people have to recover from these specific addictions, but what I wanna to say to you right now is if you have an addictive tendency, just move that to the very, to number one spot on your list of how you're gonna double down on your healing. If you're escaping, if, if you're using anything at all to sort of escape life's ups and downs and those feelings of disappointment and stress and emptiness and loneliness, you know what it's like. But if you're using something to escape that, you cannot recover from it. It's almost impossible. And I mean, look around. Look around you at people who have, who have these kind of struggles. Look around at people who once had the struggles and got better. The path towards healing always involves facing 
what's going wrong. And your life, even when you're perfectly healed, which nobody's going to be perfectly healed, but even if you were, life is going to have ups and downs. You're going to lose friends. Big disappointments will happen. Outside events will happen. You're going to need a means to be able to handle what comes. And that is true freedom when you feel like whatever happens, I'll be able to face it. You can't just beat yourself up. You can't just read a book. All of, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of ways that you can heal, but one of them is going to have to be a way that you self-comfort and bring yourself back out of dysregulation and into re-regulation. And when you have that, you'll find it a lot easier to overcome addictions. 10. Sit down and ask yourself. It's just a thought exercise. I really like this one. Ask yourself, if I really had to solve this problem, what are 10 things I could do? And I love doing this. I apply it to all kinds of problems, but it's a really good one to do about how you would heal from your complex PTSD. Because you actually have the answers in there. You know a number of things that you suspect would be really helpful, but you just haven't had the, the energy or the focus to take them on right now. So make a list of them. You still don't, you don't have to take them on all at once, right? But make a list of them. Just like bring them into the sunlight. Let them in. Just let them into your mind and heart and see what happens. If you're going to heal from the trauma of the past, you're going to need to get your power back. And what I mean by that is the life force that is generally drained and suppressed by trauma that gives you energy and focus each day to get up and take care of yourself. Now, when I say power, I don't necessarily mean power over other people. I want to talk about power as the inner resource inside where you know your next right action and you have the strength and confidence to actually take that action because it takes power to get up in the morning. It takes power to take a shower, to brush your teeth, to get to work on time, right? It takes power to get a job and it takes power to leave a job that no longer works for you. It takes power to learn something new, right? To create something, to, to develop yourself, to be ready for a new job maybe. And it takes power to hold your ground and stay regulated around difficult people. So this is really what empowerment is. It's not something other people give you like, I empowered these people. It's not really something that can be given. It's something that rises up within yourself through consistent positive actions in, in the atmosphere of your basic good self. But power is also something that you can make stronger by steering clear of things that drain your power. So the trouble with CPTSD is it's really common for people to lose their power. And a lot of trauma-driven behaviors do that. They feel like a great idea, but they drain you in the end. So let's talk about CPTSD behaviors that take away your power. I'll tell you a bunch of them and then we'll go back through and I'll tell you how you get back your power from each of those tendencies that people with CPTSD have. Some, you'll have some of these, not all of them. So let's talk about the CPTSD behaviors that take away your power. And I'll, I'll tell you a whole list of possibilities and you can see if any of them ring true for you. But after I go through them, I'll go back and I'll talk about how to take your power back if that's your tendency, okay? So number one, the way people with trauma sometimes lose their power is believing that someone is coming to save you. And you know, this doesn't just come from Disney movies. It's just coded in there. It is an old childhood memory. 
And if you were not protected and people did not come to your aid when you needed it when you were a kid, you may have kind of gotten stuck with your hope just kind of flying out of you all the time. You know, sooner or later, somebody's going to show me the boundaries of what's happening here. They're going to tell me how you're supposed to navigate this. And one of the hardest things about growing up and then as you get older, it's this hard realization that comes when you grow up, sometimes gradually, sometimes it takes a long time, that nobody's coming, that sometimes people can help you when you need help, but mainly evolving your life and becoming who you really are is something you're going to do. All right, number two, this is a tendency that can drain your power is believing that someone who hasn't apologized to you must apologize and they got to do it right or you're never going to heal. That's a really self-destructive belief and it drains your power. It's basically taking all your power and giving, putting it in the hands of somebody else, you know, with this idea like, and I, I, I totally believe you that they probably owe you an apology, but it doesn't have to mean that you don't heal. And to believe that anything can stop you from healing is to give away your power. Your power depends on you, you know, just having a basic mindset of like, anything is possible. I know healing is possible. I'm going to get to work on it. I'm going to do the best I can. And if things don't work, I'll change course a little bit and I'll keep finding what does work. That is a positive attitude. That's, you know, basically all any of us has. All right. Number three for things that drain your power. And it's trying to get approval from people who are mean to you or don't care about you. And I know you have people like this in your life. We all do. If you have CPTSD, they're probably, they probably starts with parents, there's relatives, there's, you know, people you knew all your life. There's this weird way that when you're not treated like you're a real person, like a real child who has real needs when you're a kid, like the whole world conspires to treat you like that sometimes not the whole world, but you're going to keep finding a pattern with that. But if you dance around thinking that it's getting the approval that's going to solve the problem and you're abandoning yourself, betraying yourself, losing yourself, trying to get somebody to like you, it drains your power. <laughs> it drains your power. At a certain point, you need to approve of yourself. And to do that is sometimes going to be a project because to approve of ourselves for real means you do things that are, that you feel good about. You've cleaned up messes that you don't feel good about. So we'll talk about that when we come back through. All right. Number four, the thing that drains your power is avoiding conflict. Now I know I sometimes advise people avoid conflict. Don't go to a family holiday and get into it with people about politics or what happened in the past. Like that will ruin your day and everybody who's there, including the innocent parties who were just hoping to have a holiday dinner with everybody. There's kids in extended families who are in the same position you were in as a kid. And if you can remember what it feels like when people are fighting. So there are so many good reasons to avoid conflict, but at a certain point you need to stand up and actually have the conflict and speak up for yourself or it begins to drain your power. All right, number five, the opposite of avoiding conflict is fighting everyone, <laughs> just fighting everyone about everything. And I don't know, I've been that person before and it's exhausting. It feels like a crusade. It feels like it's just happening to you and you know, you have no choice, but you, you do have a choice about who you fight with. And if you're fighting with everyone, you're probably going to drain all your power before you actually resolve anything. 
you know, I, I totally understand the spirit of fighting everyone. It's like standing up for yourself, you know, standing up for what's true, not allowing abuse. And yes, you don't want to do those things. But if it's just like across the board, what ends up happening is you lose so much power, you can't um, take sane action. You can't see what's really happening. So you neither want to avoid conflict or fight everyone. There's this middle ground. Number six is using intoxicating drugs to cope with dysregulation. Now, those might be prescribed. We might be talking about alcohol, which is, you know, it's not illegal. It's just intoxicating. And, and so are street drugs, obviously. But a lot of people will say, I'm self-medicating, you know, with alcohol or weed or what have you. And self-medicating, I just think that's a nice way of saying using. It's just everybody's self-medicating when they use drugs and alcohol. When there's not like an underlying addiction, it's, you know, we call it recreational, but it's always like on a continuum, right? From the first part of the continuing, it's like, it starts fun and then it turns into, you know, self-medication and trying to deal with feelings. So I just bring this up so that you can ask yourself, you know, are you using the term self-medication or are you using drugs out of some belief? I hear this a lot. People are like, yeah, you know, they smoke weed every day, quite a lot saying it helps with regulation. And I would just say, do whatever you have to do to keep yourself alive. But in the long run, if you're gonna learn to re-regulate, it's not gonna work with intoxicants. That's just not generally the pattern for people. The ideal state for you is to be able to go, oh, I'm getting dysregulated, and then to have tools to be able to pull it back in, to be able to pull that back in. If you have a tendency to get neurologically dysregulated, you feel overwhelmed, um, discombobulated, clumsy, can't get your words out, spacing out, you might be having dysregulation from, from complex PTSD. It's really normal for people who had a traumatic childhood. And I teach people how to overcome that. I'll put a link up above here where you can uh, download. I have a download called Signs of Dysregulation and Emergency Measures to Re-Regulate. And you can get that by clicking that. But stay with me here. Um, if you're using drugs to re-regulate, it's a temporary fix. It's probably not re-regulating you that well. And when you do learn to re-regulate, even a little bit, even if you haven't mastered it every day, all day, uh, nobody has, right? Everybody gets dysregulated sometimes. But with CPTSD, we just want to be better at re-regulating. We want to notice it's happening. We want to get re-regulated faster. The seventh thing that can drain your power from complex PTSD is putting yourself down where you are having this negative self-talk, that inner critic going, oh, I'm such an idiot, you know? Oh, I know this is, or, or you know, you're talking to people and you're like, excuse me, I know this is stupid, but uh, can I ask a question? You're putting yourself down. And it's just, it's a natural instinct um, that comes with the fawning. There's four trauma reactions, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And fawning is when you're like, excuse me, I'm sorry. And putting oneself down is sort of the equivalent of when a dog who's like nervous and jittery and you go to pet them and they go, ooh, and they roll over on their back. You don't want to be like that. You want to stay in your strength. You want to stay in your power. All right, number eight is overspending, uh, credit cards. Uh, going into debt, that is a way that you lose your power. A person who has a lot of debt has very few choices. Like you have to stay in some job that you have because to spend two months looking for a different one would throw you so far off financially that you can't even do it. So overspending and debting are two things that take the power away that you could really do so much more with that power for healing. All right, nine, 
Underspending. Yes, the opposite is not good either. You drain your power. And I always say, if you want to know if you're underspending, go look in your underwear drawer. Are they decent? Would you be okay if somebody had to go in your room and pack for you? Does your underwear drawer reflect your basic socioeconomic level? Or, or is everything shabby and yucky and assuming no one's ever going to see it? You might be underspending. Sometimes taking care of yourself means having appropriate things, not lavish things, but appropriate. All right, number 11 is avoiding your own intellectual growth, um, avoiding learning. Learning is so important and you're going to need to learn to heal. So when you're avoiding that, when you're, you know, doing waste of time things like, um, you know, drinking, watching TV. I love TV. I love TV. There's a place for it. But when you're doing that instead of doing the learning that would help you heal, it's a problem. Number 12, staying friends with people who drain your energy, who diminish you, who put you down, who take a lot from you, but don't give back. I, this is so common for us, but it drains your power and it starts to affect how you see yourself, who you see yourself as being, what you think is possible for you. All right, number 13, getting into romantic relationships with people who cannot or will not go the distance with you. So if you're taking all your love and all that sort of powerful, potent life force of wanting to be in a relationship, very precious energy that you have, right? Possibly even having children. This is like a very important power and energy that you have. And if you're just taking it and just, bleh, you know, giving it to somebody who doesn't care about you, you'll know if you're doing it, right? <laughs> but if you're doing that, your power is just draining away and you don't even have that to attract someone appropriate or to give to somebody who happens to show up. You won't even recognize good people who show up when you're completely drained by, you know, obsessing on someone unavailable or staying in a relationship that's not good for you. All right, number 14 is neglecting yourself. If you're not taking care of your health, if you're not taking care of your hygiene, this is really common, right? your appearance, like, is your hair brushed in the back? <laughs> you know, in the back. And, not, and after the, <laughs> I'm not talking about pandemic times here. <laughs> and I saw this once on uh, New Girl where she goes, I'm going to shave my legs even on the back. <laughs> back of the legs too. And I laughed so hard because that was like, yeah, that's a level of self-care that I had to graduate to. And so, you know, we don't just do this for appearances of having hygiene, but we actually take care of ourselves. So we'll talk about that in a minute. All right, number 15 draining your power is doing too much, over-functioning. Um, this is where you just feel like, you know, I do everything for everybody. I, you go to potlucks with way more than other people bring to the potluck. You uh, keep your life incredibly busy. You're pursuing multiple degrees and jobs all at the same time. And you know the signs because you're very stressed out and exhausted all the time. Um, I think doing things and accomplishment and taking action is super wonderful, but there is a line. There's a line where it begins to drain your power. All right, 16, doing too little, getting paralyzed from taking action, avoiding action altogether, just getting into deep procrastination. Oh, it feels so bad to do that. Drains your power. 17 is blaming, blaming other people for your problems. And, uh, you know, you undoubtedly have problems that are caused by other people. But there can be this way where that becomes a deep rumination. It's a rumination that gets into your bones and you think about it all the time. And you're like, you know, if only this thing hadn't happened in 1981, everything would be different for me. 
And what that puts you into is somewhere other than right here, other than right here looking at your problems and what can be done about them. Losing power. Number 18 is cutting people out of your life instead of healing relationships when healing is possible and desirable. So we've all encountered people who sort of cut and run when the going feels a little bit tense. They are fleers. They are avoidant. And that might be you too. A lot of us kind of swing both ways on that. Like if somebody's fleeing from you, maybe you cling. <laughs> if they're smothering you, you flee. You know, it's all really common with CPTSD. But our power builds up when we can stay and deepen relationships and strengthen them. So if you're sabotaging all of that, I have no doubt you're losing opportunities in personal power. Okay, my last two have to do with not dealing with the problems in your life. And one way to do that is to stay too busy running around all the time, overfilling your calendar. You know, oh, I'm so stressed, I'm so busy. The other way you can do that is by being too involved, too consumed with other people's problems, such as if you're in a relationship with somebody who has an addiction or who's an alcoholic um, or who's uh, doing something terrible with the money and you're just constantly consumed in this and you're tired and drained and walking around with circles under your eyes because of what you've been going through at home, consumed with somebody else's problem. There is a way to take your power back from that. So let's talk about that. Let's go back through the list that I just gave you and talk about how you can retrieve your power and build it up instead as you heal your trauma. With the belief that someone is going to come and save you, I want you to just tell yourself right now, that is a beautiful fantasy and I am hereby going to step up and save myself. It's the best thing. So one part of my life where I've had to do this is, you know, crappy childhood fairy. It's a company. and. It's a company I love running, but I don't know if I do it the best way all the time. And I used to have this fantasy that if I could just find the right consultant, they would come in and go, I see exactly what you're doing right. I see exactly what you're doing wrong. Do this, change this, change that. And everything would get easy and better. And, um, and it never worked. And I tried and tried <laughs> with some different things and different functions. And what I had to learn is it's actually going to have to be me. Like it's my company. And if something is wrong, I'm going to need to do the research to understand why, and I'm going to have to come up with the solution to fix it. And I can hire a team and I can have people help me, but it's always going to be that the buck stops with me. I'm going to have to see it. I'm the person who cares the most about it. And so it is with our lives. So if you find yourself thinking, if I could just find the right person, if I just had, you know, $50,000 more, all my problems would be solved. No, probably some very specific problems would be solved, you know, to do with money or to do with now you're with somebody and when you go to the wedding, you have a date, but it, it does not solve all your problems. And in the end, it's you who's always going to be facing Get this, a never-ending fountain of problems, like we're human. Problems come at us, problems bubble up from within. And so the strongest, safest route you can take is just to be very, like ride the surfboard of life and just know you're gonna have to spot your own problems. You're gonna have to be responsive to them and try to embrace that. It's actually the great adventure of life is what it is. 
With CPTSD, it can feel like, oh, I'm broken, there's no point, or this is too overwhelming. But that's a terrible attitude. Things, problems will pile up if you can't come and save yourself. And save yourself, it's sort of an exaggerated term. Every once in a while, actually, you do need to save yourself out of a dangerous situation. But saving yourself from a life of mediocrity, a life of quiet desperation, a life of isolation to cope with your triggers, that's worth saving yourself. And you can do that. You can do that. And it's going to come from you. The second thing is, um, instead of believing that someone has to apologize for you to heal, just accept that they are never going to apologize. If they do, it'll be this incredible surprise, but you'll find out then it doesn't fix you. You don't need it to heal. And the thing is, most people never apologize, or if they do, it's a flimsy apology. It doesn't really speak to the thing that hurt you. So your post-traumatic growth has to do with how you sort of take that thing that happened to you and you're able to, you know, compartmentalize it a little bit. Be like, yes, this happened, but it's not my whole identity. I'm not sitting there like a, like a, like with a festering wound that only some other person, like the person who hurt you, oh my gosh, you can't even, like if they couldn't be kind to you in the first place, are they really going to help you recover? Are they really going to say the words that you need? I have such great news. You don't need them. And sometimes when you can sort of relax that demand on people or that expectation, it does create a little bit more gentleness and space where maybe they would give it a try sometime. But I'm telling you, you probably won't be satisfied because people who hurt others, it takes a lot of denial to live with oneself. That's what I'm just saying. Occasionally people do the work where they really get it and they can say they're sorry and they uh, they've been thinking about how that must have affected you and how lovely that they do that. And I think there's a really great connection that can grow with people as a result of that. And it might prompt you to sort of go, oh yeah, that really wasn't my fault. But often it, do it doesn't bring the perfect like island landing of perfect ease that we were hoping for. That comes from the healing that you can do whether anybody else takes responsibility for their actions or not. The third one, what to do to get your power back is instead of dancing around trying to get approval from people who were never going to give it to you anyway, just stop dancing. Just kind of go about your business and just release them. That little invisible rubber band that you have on them, like, come on, approve of me. Let me know I'm okay, that you love me. You can finally just like, Ugh. you don't even have to let it snap. Just release it. And you might just be surprised that there's a little more space for people to come towards you. I'm not making any promises. I mean, the people who traumatized you, Here's, if they traumatized you when you were a kid, your beautiful child's imagination probably dressed them up a little bit and gave them a little bit more p potential than they actually have to take responsibility for what they did and treat you right. Mm. I'm sorry to say it, but if you can just accept that that's often the case and go ahead and heal anyway, then anything that they come towards you with, any positive thing that they can contribute, is great, you know, that's just nice. It's just like a cherry on top. The fourth thing, instead of avoiding conflict, do your footwork so that you can have conversations about what's bothering you. If someone's going to hurt you, if you speak up, step away from them. Never try to work things out with people who you think could physically hurt you or who are out to emotionally abuse you. There is no point. If you're worried that someone will abandon you if you speak up, okay, here's my radical advice, let them. If people are prepared to abandon you because you need to talk about what's bothering you, 
it's going to be this incredible dance to hold on to them and make them stay. It's a drain of your power if you have to use your life force to try to keep somebody attached to you. If you're worried somebody will criticize you, just prepare yourself to hear it. If you haven't heard of my front porch concept, all right, think of yourself, of your heart, your feelings, your mind. It's, this is your house, and out here you have a front porch. And so if people want to talk to you, and you're not really sure if they're safe or what their motives are, you can say, oh, fine, come. <laughs> just picture them talking to you on your front porch. And so you bring your attention out to the porch and go, sure, what have you got to say? And then they say it and you decide, am I going to let this, what they said, or let this person like into the house? Do I let it into my heart or do I just consider it out here and go, you, and where I have the option to go, hmm, yes, I reject that. You can say you reject it to them or you can just go, all right, well, thank you for your feedback. Bye. You, <laughs> you don't have to get into it with anybody. Um, because the next one, the fifth thing, if you've been fighting everyone, there's avoiding conflict. Uh, and there's coming to the porch for the conflict, and then there's running off the porch and getting out there and fighting with everyone. Well, that probably means you have confusion about boundaries, what you can ask for from people, what it means when you don't get what you ask for, what, what people's intentions are when things feel disappointing. That is something that can get so messy when you're still like, you got some unhealed trauma wounds there. But fighting drains you. So you speaking up is good, fighting drains you, just big messy conflicts. Some of it can't be avoided, it's life, it's part of having relationships. But if you grew up in a household where there was violence or there was you know, horrible animosity, then sometimes there's this really bad well that opens up when you get into you know, trying to state what you need or listen to somebody else's criticisms and it can get so tough. And I really recommend that you learn some techniques for staying regulated when you are trying to communicate things that are a little bit fraught or triggering for you. To stay regulated, um, you can take that, I'll put the link in here again, to the signs of dysregulation and emergency measures to re-regulate. And at the end of this, I'll also tell you about my free course where you can learn the techniques that I use every day. It's called the daily practice. All right, uh, fighting is a drain. Speaking up for yourself is empowering. Taking a bunch of random criticism is a drain. Being able to hear criticism on your front porch can be empowering and it, it can be enlightening. You get to have a choice about what comes out and what comes in. And I know how hard it is when you have all that neurological dysregulation and emotional dysregulation from CPTSD, but that's what we do at Crappy Childhood Fairy. We learn how to master that. So everything becomes possible. The sixth thing was instead of using intoxicating substances to cope with dysregulation, you can learn healthy ways to re-regulate. This again is where my daily practice comes in handy. It's very calming and soothing and you must have a way to calm yourself and to soothe yourself. I'm not saying that like, hey lady, calm down. Nobody wants to hear that. I certainly don't. But everybody needs to find ease and comfort, especially in emotional distress. And if you've sought help for your complex PTSD symptoms, even if you didn't have a name for, you know, what is wrong with me, you've probably met with the thing where people are just like, calm down, you know, think of this, not that, say this, not that, but it's all just such a jumble when it's going on. So this technique, the daily practice, it's a way of putting in writing what your fearful and resentful thoughts are. And they, those are just like, you know, when you're dysregulated, when you're in a conflict with somebody, you get them on paper, you ask for them to be removed or release them, depending on, you know, how you see the nature of reality. And then you 
go into, you just rest in meditation for 20 minutes and let your brain recompose itself. And I'm telling you, you will be amazed what a difference it can make just to do this easy thing that takes nothing more than a pen and paper and some uh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You can't always do it in the middle of a conversation, but the more you can teach yourself to step away when conversations get intense like that, the better. And you can take a minute. And this, when I had been doing these techniques for three years was when I was finally able to let go of my two pack a day smoking habit. And I was definitely using cigarettes to stay regulated and to try to handle the intensity of things coming up. I had to have, as they say in AA, a sufficient substitute, right? If your thing is alcohol or drugs, definitely learning how to have that ease and comfort and get those thoughts out of your head is such a great I know people who do just that to get clean and sober. Maybe you have another technique, but you can use that together just to always have, you know, you have your pen, you have your paper, you always have a way to just calm down. And a lot of people will be like, take a deep breath. I just want to tell you, taking deep breaths has never been enough for me when, when my CPTSD symptoms are upon me. I always felt like that was just like a little bit um, light. It's, it's a good thing, but it's not enough when, when the full thing's going on, when you're in bull in a china shop state of mind, right? The seventh thing, instead of putting yourself down to other people, remember I talked about that, putting yourself down and fawning, just focus on letting go of what other people think. When you're working on yourself, you will have a much better sense of when you're doing something you don't feel good or dignified or proud of, and when you actually are okay. When you have confusion about whether you're being a good person and keeping it together, you're going to find yourself paranoid that other people are judging you all the time. And the fact of the matter is, they are. You know all those sayings like, it doesn't matter what other people think, but actually if you're like being very rude or cruel or something and other people are going, wow, she's really rude and cruel, they would have a point. <laughs> I feel like we don't say that enough. And there's so much like on Instagram, it's like, oh, it's, you know, other people's criticism is always wrong. It's like, not so. Sometimes they're right. And CPTSD involves some difficult behaviors. But putting yourself down is never productive. So working on yourself, which you can do, you can do it with the daily practice. People do it in my membership program. They do it in 12-step programs. They do it with therapists. You can work on stuff where you're kind of undermining yourself or getting into self-defeating behavior. And every time you resolve one of those problems, you're, it's like, woo, your head comes up. You feel good. And then you, you don't have that urge to put yourself down to other people. And the fawning instinct, the fawning instinct, you know, comes from a childhood thing of like, if I'm nice to you, mommy, will you please not be mean to me? Will you please not leave? And it comes from that, right? So you, when you heal your trauma, when you heal your fundamental security, part of which is to feel good about your own ability to solve your problems, your own ability to take responsibility for how you treat other people. Like that feels good. It feels really good and less insecurity is there and more security that, you know what, if somebody's just like, won't give me a break, I'm, I'm truly doing my best here. And they're just endlessly criticizing me. It's just like, here's what you do. Whoop, just let them go. You don't even have to push them away. You can, but you don't even have to. Just release that hope that they're gonna come around and like you or approve of you. You need to approve of yourself. And if you think, oh gosh, this criticism's about to come. Let me preempt it. I'll put myself down first. It's not gonna work anyway. It doesn't make them see what's so great about you. 
it tends to, you know, they get a little bit of agreement for if they were actually thinking something bad about you. Now, I know sometimes we project that they're think that people are thinking something bad about us, which is another reason not to just jump in there and go, I know you're probably seeing what a liar I am <laughs> or something. And then they'd be like, hmm, I hadn't really thought of it, but maybe, yeah. <laughs> so don't give them that. Just work on yourself. Work on yourself and do your best to be a person you feel good about. All right, in the first round, we talked about overspending, spending beyond your means, going into debt, using credit cards to death. So instead of doing that, here's what you can do. You can begin keeping track of your spending and your bills, what you owe, what you spend, and what you earn. Now, I'm telling you, this is something that when you're in the middle of kind of dysfunction around this stuff, you are thinking, oh, I just can't look. I don't want to face it. It feels so good to face it. It can be really fun to start making a plan to go over, you know, here's what happened. Here's what my goals are. Here's what I'm trying to save. You are not alone. If you have debt, you are not alone. It is so common for people to end up in debt, especially if you grew up with trauma because first of all, the trauma causes poverty. You may have grown, grown up with sort of like poverty thinking, and then it causes difficulty being in situations with other people. And being able to you know, be, be good with other people is so much how we earn money. Very few people have figured out how to do that without actually interfacing with other people. Having CPTSD can interfere with learning and because, you know, it's hard to pay attention. So you might be working with a few deficits and you are not alone and it's okay and you don't have to be ashamed, but it's just time to start putting it together here. So one thing people I know um, who have struggled around money and debt is they there's a 12-step program called Debtors Anonymous and they have this thing that people do called a pressure relief group. Um, I haven't done this myself, but I had friends who did it. And I always thought, gosh, that's brilliant. Like everything should have that where a few people get together every week and they are really open with each other about what they owe. They bring their receipts. They talk about it, like bring it out of secrecy and out into the open. You can do this with any kind of um, behavior like overeating or an addiction or um, anything that's starting to take you out of your, you know, operating in your own best interest is just bring it to the light of day with the support of other people. So I think that I, I've heard nothing but good things about that 12-step fellowship. Debtors Anonymous, you can check it out. You probably know exactly what to do. You make a budget, you pay down debts, you could do a snowball pay down or an avalanche pay down. And you can research all of that. I really like Dave Ramsey's book. I found that helpful when I got out of debt um, 10 years ago. Uh, it's hard to do when you're only thinking about your money sometimes. So it starts to become like a daily habit. And it's crazy how much when you can sort of put your positive attention on a problem every day and just sort of set aside time to deal with it, things just start to turn around like magic. <laughs> I remember I started to do things like um, be careful about what gas station I went to. I used to just go to whichever one was convenient. But then I was like, you know, it probably doesn't break the bank if I spend $3 more on, a, on gas this week. <laughs> Petrol, for those of you in Britain. It probably doesn't make such a big difference, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the thrifty thing. I'm just going to keep doing the thrifty thing. And I got better about shopping and cooking at home. And I even would stop and pick up pennies when I saw them on the ground. I don't, pennies are really not going to change my budget, but it was just the, the principle of the whole thing, the mindset of me getting into, I'm not going to let money just leak out of me because that's what I'm teaching you here. Do not let your power drain out of you. And the money that you have in your possession that you are not leaking out all over the place 
is part of your power. It's part of your ability to make choices in the world. All right. The ninth thing is if you're an underspender, if you're not taking care of yourself, if your underwear drawer is shameful and you really hope nobody ever looks in there before you can get in there and throw out all those ripped awful old undies and replace them with something new that fits you, that's appropriate, that you like, that you feel good in, right? And by the way, yes, it's possible to be both an overspender and an underspender. To be, you know, hemorrhaging money out on vacations or trying to help somebody else and then in your own drawers having shabby things and things that are not suitable for a person, you know, in your place in life, your age, your more or less socioeconomic level. Do you have a decent pair of shoes that aren't stained? Do you have um, something nice to wear if you were to go to a dinner party? So many of us with CPTSD don't have that. And I think it got a lot worse during the pandemic when it just became possible to slump around and maybe because of not feeling great about your body, you just don't have the right things to wear. So I'm just gonna say, if that's resonating for you, you can get your power back by taking appropriate care of yourself. Remember I said, nobody's coming to save you. People aren't gonna come and just buy you a new wardrobe or tell you what to wear. Like a little time and effort has to go into this. And I'll be honest with you, I am somebody who hates shopping. I get very triggered in department stores. It gets overwhelming within an hour. I don't know what it is, the sounds, the smells, the pressure, the old growing up poor memory of having to find exactly the right one thing that would have to suffice for all purposes. and getting like, I can't, I can't find one thing. And if I buy one thing and it doesn't work for this, I won't have anything. I just have this like old stuff that comes up. So how I take care of myself around that is I always shop alone. I drink a lot of water. I pause, I sit down, I take a break and I get out of there. I just don't try to do it all at once. <laughs> I will have a tendency sometimes to go here. I'll just get two years of stuff at one store where I've just found a couple of things that fit and I'll get all the colors and get that. Yeah, that's one way. <laughs> it's one way, but like doing it that way is not really taking care of myself. And another part of your life to look at in terms of are you spending a right amount of money is bedding. Is your bedding suitable? Is it clean and comfortable for you? Is it the right temperature for you? So I've been very poor before and had to use, you know, just a dirty old sleeping bag for a long period of time. And um, so I totally understand that sometimes that's how it is. But if you're in a certain place where you could have those things, but you don't bother to do it for yourself, it's possible that you're underspending and it's a way that you're expressing low self-esteem and sort of telegraphing to the world if they ever, you know, either keeping them out of your personal space, you don't invite people over, right? That's, a, that's unempowerment, disempowerment to do that. But yeah, just shutting out parts of your life because you don't have the power to kind of meet life at a good place, at a good level, like wearing a nice, I don't know, this shirt. I bought this shirt last year at a department store, I remember. And I remember I almost bought like four colors of it because I just like this shirt. It's comfortable, it looks okay. But I only bought one and I thought to myself, if I really love the shirt, I can buy another one. <laughs> All right, we talked about under earning. And if you're under earning, if you're not making enough money, then you, I cannot say enough about how important it is to have money, all right? A lot of people, and I think it's only people who have unlimited amounts of money, they're just like, hey, money's not really the important things. They have no idea what it's like not to have enough to eat. I do, I do know, and I know what it's like not to have dental care. I know what it's like to have to stay in a bad relationship just to have somewhere to live, and I never, ever want to be in that place again. I'm so grateful to be able to earn a fundamental amount of money that 
means I have choices about where I am. And today I'm happily married. And so of course we live together and it's a great situation. I am all about though saving for my retirement. I'm all about saving for us so that we have a suitable place to live throughout our lives and um, helping my kids through college. And remember, I'm somebody who only got out of debt 10 years ago. So I'm very focused on that and that's a way I take care of myself. And the signs that I'm not taking care of myself is a sense of dread and worry. And so sometimes maybe things are okay, but I haven't come to peace around it. And so I'm worried and or I'm thinking about what other people have and I don't have that much. You know, I still don't have the material stuff that I had always thought I'd have in life. I'm not there yet. But with a little luck, I think I might get there <laughs> in my lifetime. But I also, because I've grown up poor and because I use my daily practice, I have a lot of confidence that I can make a pretty good go of my circumstances wherever I end up. I don't want to be homeless. I don't want to ever be stuck somewhere where I don't want to be. And so I take very good care of my earning. For people with CPTSD, one way it's done is uh, you're not going for the opportunities that you, you know, you're not working in a job that would pay enough. So I see a lot of people who are working in low pay jobs and then resentful all their lives that those jobs don't pay enough, but they don't pay enough for anybody. They don't pay the level that you would like to be earning and then staying in the job, staying angry and like, this is not fair. And one example of this is um, teachers, right? My mom was a teacher. Some of the great people in my life were teachers. But as we know, teachers don't get paid very much. And we know that going in. So what I sort of have to say to people is taking care of yourself means being very clear with yourself about how much you need to be earning. And if it's more than a teacher makes, then being a teacher may not be a good career for you. You need to go in, into something that pays better. Now, a lot of careers also require research. If you're not earning what you think you should earn, and the other way this can happen, it's like you don't go for the type of job or career, or you're in the career, but you resentfully, um, you know, just get made invisible by people. You don't get offered raises or anything. As you may have heard, <laughs> this is very common for women asking for a raise. It feels too confrontational for many people. It was something I had a hard time doing, but you know what? I got a raise. I haven't had a job with an employer for a long time, but I did, I did consulting. And um, in many situations, I had to raise my rates over time. And the, the hardest part of that was the inner job of just deciding that I was worth it and that I would work hard enough to continue to be worth it, that I would deliver work worth that. It was easier for my clients to accept pay rises, you know, uh, an increase of rates from me than it was for me to prepare that self. So it's an inner job. And you do that by doing the research, by dressing the part, by doing learning the skills that are needed. Um, I can't tell you, I know a lot of people who are software engineers. I live in, I live in you know, the northern part of Silicon Valley. And a lot of people are software engineers. And in some environments where software engineers work, there's a huge culture of learning and people are always learning new things and they're being cutting edge. And you know, that tends to be a workplace culture that's really going to go somewhere and innovate. But other places end up with a workplace culture. And I'm just picking on tech people here, but this happens in all professions. And people don't learn new things. They're just very protected and defended and like, 
you know, we've always, always done it this way. We don't do that. Oh, that's just somebody's opinion about some new thing and they want to keep everything the same. Well, in technology, that doesn't tend to do very well. In all careers, it pays to read about your industry. It pays to learn about what interests you. And it pays to learn about things that are completely different than the work you do. Because sometimes getting outside of the work you do and learning about something stimulates your imagination so that you can contribute positively. And if you're going to increase your income, then contributing positively to the workplace, to the teamwork, to whatever is going on there is the number one thing that you're going to be able to do. You're going to need to be able to do that. It doesn't automatically get you a raise. You have to be good and then you have to ask for the money that, that it warrants. And if then, if that can't happen there, you need to have the guts to move on and find a new job, which also takes research and preparation and all that stuff. But Power, I, this is just, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more deeply about earning money. Um, so often people who are in an abusive relationship, and especially if they have children, feel like they cannot leave because they neglected their ability to make money. And uh, neglect is a hard word. A lot of people stayed home to care for kids. But now, now they must get out. There needs to be a way out. I see nothing wrong with living in a shelter, um, getting welfare, whatever you have to do to get out of an abusive situation. But ideally, of course, no one wants to stay stuck there for long. It's an act of personal growth to learn things and take action in a direction towards where you're trying to go, which ideally is doing work that is meaningful to you and making enough money to live decently. Very important to be able to live decently. Studies show that beyond living decently, like more money doesn't necessarily increase happiness enough money that you have choices and you, you, you have sovereignty over your own life. You live where you would like to live. I don't live in a mansion. I might like to live in a bigger house, but I live in a safe place. That's what I mean. Another reason I want to give you for learning more, you know, I talked about learning and neglecting your learning. If you've been neglecting your learning, one reason to really get into it it's not only does it help it put you in a more powerful position to do the kind of work at a level of pay that's more suitable for you, but it makes you more alive and it makes you a more interesting person. It activates something in your brain when you're learning, either reading a book that's challenging or taking a course. If it's online, if it's not, I do, I'll admit, and I know <laughs> some people have bought my course and they're like, I'm sorry, I never actually took it. And I'm like, I understand. I've done that too. But, but to actually engage in learning, to actually engage in learning. It makes you more powerful, more interesting. It costs some of your free time. It might cost some of the time that you would otherwise spend socializing and socializing is important too. But I promise you when, you, when you increase your learning, it will dial up the quality of how you spend your time. It will dial up the quality of how you spend your time and it will increase the wonderfulness of the people who are drawn to you and wanna hang out with you. We're up to like the 12th thing here. If you've been staying friends with people who drain you and making you feel bad, it's time to talk to those friends about how you feel. Um, or if you're ready to let them go, you don't even have to tell them how you feel. You can just let them go. When you feel better about yourself, your relationships will tend to evolve. The people who were never gonna sort of come along and be respectful and kind and supportive of you, they will fade away. They often will fade away angrily. They don't like something. Oh, you think you're so great. They will, but they will sort of take themselves out. The good people in your life, they might be there now. They might be people you are soon to meet, but they will come to you. They will be drawn to you because they match you. They are also at a level of growth and growing 
that is similar to yours. They won't resent your growth. They will like it. They will want what you're doing in your life to be a good influence on them. And likewise, they will be a good influence on you. The 13th thing, if you've been spending good years of your life in romantic relationships with people who chronically disappoint you, who hurt you, they can't grow with you, they can't commit to you, or they can't commit to themselves even, well, think of them as a room with a sticky floor. It's hard to leave, you can't get your feet up, right? But having a happy relationship begins when you get yourself out. It never, it always feels like you're shutting the door on love, like you're giving up the only chance of love. But if that love is not making you loved, then the shortest path to being loved is out the door of that bad relationship. So if you're going to be in a relationship, aim for one that makes you feel good about yourself. That will be your sign. Like sometimes, Sometimes you'll be not sure, like, hmm, we have these differences, we have these qualities I like. But the number one sign is just like check in with yourself. How do you feel about yourself? Does this person bring out the best in you? Do they make you want to be a better person? Do they make you want to be more and do more, right? That's a sign. That's what they're talking about when they say that someone completes you, right? Their, their very presence in your life sort of draws you forward into a better version of yourself. All right, the 14th thing, if you've been neglecting yourself, your health, your hygiene, your appearance, sit down, get a piece of paper and pen and make a list of 10 things you can do to take better care of yourself. And this is gonna be, you know what they are, you know what they are, but I want you to write them down. Go take a walk, find a recipe to make a healthy meal, make an appointment to get your teeth cleaned. You know what you need to do, but you need to sit down and be, bring it into your conscious consciousness, into, your, into the top of mind. So make a list of 10 things. If you, can't, if, if you make a list of 10 things and you tape it to the wall where you see it every day, begin to take at least one action a day towards doing that. Make the appointment for the dental cleaning, okay? Go take the walk. Make a date with your neighbor to take a walk. Uh, arrange to walk somebody's dog for them. Just take the action and put it on your calendar to take at least one action on your list of things that need to happen for you every day. If you want to do more than one, great. But I'm always, with CPTSD, sometimes if you're going to be making positive changes, like let it be slow, let it be gentle, so that you don't have to quit and freak out and dive under the covers and hide from everything, just a little at a time. Titration, a little at a time, adjust, a little at a time, adjust. That's how you can make some changes. All right, so if you've been doing too much, if you've been over-functioning, you've been giving your, your power away to other people, trying to show them how helpful you are, how totally on top of everything you are, trying to make sure that they value your friendship because you know, you're gonna step in. You hear they're getting married and that, that's it. You'll take care of everything for them. You volunteer. That's what over-functioning is. And people who over-function will almost always tend to crash. They'll do a whole bunch of stuff and people start to count on them. I've done this and I've had people do it to me. And then boom, all of a sudden they do this like flip on you. They're just like, they're so angry. They're so angry because in their mind, they've been working on this complicated equation where they will not say anything, but they'll be so busy and helpful that something they want from you is gonna come their way. And then you have no idea they're even doing this and so you can't deliver you don't even know what it is and they're just like boom and then they cut you out of their life have you had that happen or have you done it to people so we don't want to do that we don't want to do that it's very good to be able to be active to function but not do too much don't do so much that you're putting yourself in jeopardy of having to flip out and run 
And if you're um, connected with somebody, either through your work or your personal life, with somebody who is like doing way more than their share of things, like see if you can talk about that with them. If you can get things out in the open about what they're doing, what they feel good about, what they were hoping would be reciprocal, you might be able to save the relationship from their flip out later. You know, when they have to, when their only way to set a boundary is to end the relationship. It's so sad, right? But it happens all the time. If you've been under-functioning, if you've been procrastinating, all right, uh, you will think to yourself, there must be a magic pill for this, but there isn't. There's actually, what happens is you break the ice. You have to break the spell. Procrastination can become a spell by getting up and doing one thing. Do one thing that gets you moving and that brings you pleasure. Make it something that you actually like. Sometimes procrastination, it's like such a negative state that if you say, oh, I'm going to go, you know, harvest all the broccoli and eat it for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll be like, no, it's, I can't, I can't break the ice. So if you go, mm, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make brownies and have one. <laughs> it's easier to break the ice. I'm trying not to eat brownies myself. <laughs> but that's that's the idea of breaking procrastination. You do one thing, and when you're getting started, make it something that gives you pleasure. So like all other changes we're talking about, releasing old coping mechanisms is going to create a little temporary moment where you feel empty. Did you, have you, have you had that happen? So when you finally stop overwatching TV or overeating brownies or whatever it is, it'll be like, oh, I don't know. I feel anxious. I feel like something's missing in my life. I just, I need something. I need a brownie. I need Netflix. I need, ah. it feels like that. All right. When you start to feel that emptiness, here's what I want you to remember. It's good. That's really good. The empty pocket is where it's the thing you're trying to fill and you're going to be able to bring your attention to it. And it's where you can sit and do the footwork to face what is in here and in your heart. What is scaring you? What's keeping you angry? What's keeping you stuck? And this again is where, where I recommend using my daily practice. That's where we get the fearful and resentful thoughts on paper, out of our heads on paper. Like, you know, it's, you're going to surprise yourself how effective it is for reducing that hamster wheel thinking when you can get it on paper. It's a very specific technique and I strongly invite you to come learn the specific technique. Don't just like rant on paper. It's not a journal. It's not a journal. A journal is for remembering and recording. This is for you just take out the trash. You're like, I have fear of this and fear of that and I'm resentful at so-and-so because I have fear of blah, blah, blah. You get it on paper. You don't even have to write nicely. And then there's a thing that you write at the end that I call the sign-off, where you ask for this to be removed if you're inclined toward a higher power. If you are more working like with your higher self, if you prefer to do that, you can release it. And then you rest your mind in meditation. All right. So that's free. You can sign up for it in the description section. The link is uh, underneath every video I make down there. So you can always find it there or on my website. The 17th thing, instead of blaming other people for your problems, which causes you to lose your power, you can forget the role that other people have played in your past. Yes, I know that's sacrilege, right? You're supposed to talk about it and acknowledge it and grieve it, but I'm going to wager probably you've already done all of that. You've probably spent a lot of time talking about it, analyzing it, reading books about it hoping that if you would just understand what happened to you enough, if you just were to talk about it enough, that you would begin to feel better. Now that could happen. It's, a, it's certainly part of healing, certainly in the beginning. But if you've been doing that, if you've been paying for a lot of therapy, you're talking, you're talking, and you're not finding relief yet, 
then something else might be needed to move you forward out of that. And that's again where the daily practice is. That's what it is. It's, it helps you deal with what has to be dealt with and then you can let go of the rest. It's a big release. Your healing doesn't always depend on talking, confronting, analyzing. Sometimes it's about naming, releasing, and then moving on with paying attention to your life today and trying to make it the best life you can. So it, it's a good exercise to look at your problems, even if someone has really pushed that problem on you and just ask yourself, what can I do to stop having this problem? Because usually even if a problem was sort of dumped on you by somebody else's bad behavior, like they're not going to fix it for you. It's you, you're, you're the one. It's not fair, but here it is, you know, somebody's got to fix it and it might as well be you. So ask yourself, is there anything I can do to solve this problem right now? And it, I, you know, try do what you can to detach it from the person who perpetrated the problem. There's very few problems that other people can solve. Some of the ones like that are like lawsuits and things. And that's one reason I have really tried to stay out of those in my life because because you can really get tied up for years trying to um, make other people a judge, a jury, the other person, the lawyers or whatever, to see it your way. And sometimes the most freeing thing, the most happy outcome is to be able to just wash it out of your hair, what happened, and move on. Sometimes. All right. The 18th thing, if you've been cutting people out of your life as a way to avoid difficult conversations, well, I want you to be able to have a choice in those moments. You can cut people out of your life, but it, it, it is something that you could exercise only when everything else that you could try has failed. So sometimes problems with other people can be worked out. And sometimes problems with other people, sacrilege again, sometimes they can be ignored. Not everybody in my life has my approval or agreement about everything they think and do. But that is, doesn't really have to be an issue because of the nature of my relationship with them. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to tailor my life around it or make them change to be friends with them. Now, I know there are relationships that do need to end. And that will become clearer, especially when you're using tools to get those fearful and resentful thoughts out of your mind. Those can actually trap you in kind of a, a strange way of like blaming other people for stuff that's not their fault, blaming yourself that's for stuff that's not your fault, um, blaming yourself and thinking they're so great when it is there, you know, it's just like our perception gets very warped. So you need a way to process your thoughts, especially the negative feelings, to process them. And sometimes processing them just means naming them, releasing them. And releasing them doesn't mean you're not going to deal with them or you're not willing to look at them. It just means that while you meditate for 20 minutes and take a rest, you're just like, there, you know, come out of my mind, let my mind come together. And you'll usually find that only some of the things that were bothering you come back. Only some of them come back. And a lot of what's been bothering you, the fearful and resentful thoughts, they're just, ooh, they just drift away. They're just forgotten. And so I, when I do my techniques of the daily practice, I write my fears and resentments, I meditate, and I keep a pad of paper just in case I go, ah, you know what? I really do have to send that rent check right now. I forgot. And I can write it down because even that, that start, that'll start to be something I must think about. I can't just like relax right now. I'm afraid I'll forget. So you take care of business and that's how you get your power back. <laughs> and, and that's very empowering when you can 
like know when you can keep track of what you feel responsible for doing and let go of the stuff that doesn't need your attention you just took all these power drains out of your life and you could take all your power back and focus them on the things that you do need to do that are fruitful that you choose that is power i would like you to have the power to save relationships that matter to you that's a very important skill to have so you you can talk to people you can talk when there's a problem and when you trust yourself a little better to be able to handle the emotions that come up when you're honest about your feelings you can be more confident about going and trying to patch things up with people when you heal you will become better at having healing conversations that help relationships and don't hurt them when you heal you'll become better at having healing conversations and you can practice that when you have a little small rift sometimes and work your way up to bigger problems all right the 19th thing if you've been staying too busy to ever focus on what needs healing in your life oh this is great this is your chance you get to do less now being over busy starts as a way to help someone out or make extra money but if it's a coping mechanism you're using all this activity to avoid something in your life it's time for you to have that quiet time and just let the awareness of the problem show you what it is you don't have to solve it yet just allow it to enter into your mind and your mind will begin to work it out as you have less PTSD symptoms your mind can do these projects for you just when you're while you're sleeping all right if you've been consumed with somebody else's problems and it's been driving your life it is time for you to bring the focus back to yourself it's one thing if this other person is a child and you're obliged to keep taking care of them and that's a hard situation and help is available for that but if it's a partner or friend and you can't, you can't be that effective in solving problems for them and there's a high probability that you're avoiding your own life by you know trying to be the hero in their life a lot of people are afraid that if they focus on themselves they'll be lonely or bored or useless or just too consumed with themselves but when you avoid yourself like this you lose all your power and guess what you become lonely and bored and unable to be useful to anyone now if you grew up with trauma a lot of what i'm saying probably sounds good but you don't know how to actually start and the place to start is with the daily practice course i teach it's two techniques that help you get clear in your mind and calm in your emotions and empowered to take good common sense actions to build your power back up i have this great tool that i use whenever i'm frustrated and confused about a problem in my life that i thought i was working on but then i realize i'm not getting anywhere i'm stuck and this is a really simple tool you can use it right now to break through and create a map that shows you the way out of the problem and you're going to create a set of instructions for yourself to put right in front of you that you can begin to take action on this is something you write down i'll show it to you in this video um, as i do it for myself all right now whether or not you get the power to do everything you write or just one thing that you write the act of writing it down has tremendous power in it sometimes just naming the changes that you need to make is enough to get that movement started that step-by-step -step movement so this is a thought exercise that i use in lots of areas of my life when I feel like I'm not making progress fast enough or I've lost my focus it's a great question to ask yourself if I had to solve this problem inside of a year what would I do so it could be something like if I had to earn x amount of money in a year how would I do that or if I had to be able to run an eight minute mile three months from now what would I need to do and then I list at least 10 things okay so the money example is real 
when my first marriage fell apart and I had two little kids, I had to figure out really fast how to go from earning about 25% what I'd need to survive as a single parent to 100% of what I'd need to survive as a single parent. Later, I used this tool to plan my next step up, how I'd get past survival and create a business and a life that would let me pay off my debts, start saving and be a good mom and eventually meet somebody new. So people with childhood PTSD, you know, we get fuzzy a lot of the time on seeing uh, I'm having a problem and if this problem is going to be solved, I'm going to have to solve it. Like that's kind of the obvious thing, but it can be very hard to see. With trauma, you may have ended up feeling like you were waiting for something or somebody outside yourself to change and then you could change. And that's, that's the heart of the problem. So I'm giving you a homework assignment that you can do yourself and I'll put the link. It will be down below in the description section. You can download it, you can print it, you can follow along with me or just listen to how I do it and then download it and you can do it for yourself. So it's called, if I just had one year to heal my childhood PTSD, what would I do? Right? All right. So I know one year is like a tight deadline to heal something as huge as childhood trauma. And healing never follows a planned timeline anyway. But don't worry about that. This is a thought exercise. It's there to open up and stimulate your thinking. So today I'm going to tell you my list. And I've got the benefit of knowing all the things that I did do to heal from childhood PTSD but I did them over a period of more than 25 years with lots of downtime and being off track during whole chunks of time. So I thought I'd share with you the benefit of my hard-won wisdom. If I could do it all over again, this is how I would do it. If I had to heal my childhood PTSD inside of a year, the first thing I would do is I would learn the science of complex PTSD and childhood PTSD. And childhood PTSD is a casual term that I use for the kind of complex PTSD that comes from childhood trauma. Complex PTSD is any kind of intense stress that happens over time, but in most cases, people with CPTSD got it in childhood, but not necessarily. The books about the science were not out when I first started healing, but if I started right now, I would take the ACE survey, um, which is a set of questions to kind of measure how bad was the trauma. I'd get my score. I'd read The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. I'd read Complex PTSD by Pete Walker. They weren't written yet when I started healing, but they're there now. So that's what I would do like right away. And there are lots and lots of other books out there, but that's where I'd start those two books. Now, if I had had access to these books, it would have saved me decades of thinking I was a broken person and hopeless and for some mysterious reason just always struggling. It turns out my symptoms are totally normal for somebody who had experiences like mine. I'm not broken. I'm normal. I'm having normal responses to abnormal circumstances. Second, I learned to notice the neurological dysregulation that is such a foundational symptom of childhood PTSD and I'd work to master re-regulation. The first thing I'd start doing is the daily practice techniques that I now teach to everybody, to hundreds of thousands of people. And this is the twice daily writing of fears and resentments in a very specific format. And you can learn and try that in less than an hour if you care to. There's a link to that free daily practice course in the description section below all my videos. After the writing, the second part of the daily practice is meditation. It's a very simple, restful meditation. Yes, twice a day. So that's what happens twice a day in the daily practice. Write and meditate first thing in the morning and then later in the afternoon, sometime before dinner is the ideal time, write and meditate. 
So the writing and meditation together have a powerful effect. If you want to know what it's like, use the specific technique that I teach and just try it. Just try it. Everybody can try it. And if you take that course, you can join me in free Zoom calls that I lead twice a month for anybody who's learned the techniques and wants to come practice them with me and ask questions. So as it happens, I did learn the daily practice 28 years ago, but back then I had no idea what was wrong with me or why using these techniques made me feel better. I just knew that I felt better. But I also went into resistance and I stopped doing it regularly. And I now know this was like opening a terrible portal for all my CPTSD symptoms to come back. So if I had my healing to do over again, I'd quit messing around and I'd just be religious about my daily practice. And I'd really do it thoroughly twice a day without fail. And I would not quit because somebody in my life found it inconvenient. And I would not quit because things didn't always go my way. What I know now is that when things don't go my way, a lot of times that is progress. That's what it looks like is something that's not working falls away. Also, it's just safe and smart to keep up your healing practice through good times and bad. So that leads me to the third thing I do to heal in a year. I'd quickly get out of all the unhealthy, dead-end, one-sided relationships with significant others and would-be significant others where one of us had feelings, but not both. Me, sometimes it was them, but basically one person who didn't have feelings was kind of using the person who did have feelings because, I don't know, it's kind of fun to have somebody adore you, I guess. But unfortunately, it costs both people their emotional availability. And, and neither person will tend to find true love when they're entangled in this kind of, you know, friendship. So I'd end all of that right off the bat. And then the fourth thing I do is become really good at happily spending time alone. This is the difference between solitude, which is happy time alone, and isolation, which is sort of involuntary time alone. I used to have so much anxiety about solitude. And so I'd fill up all my free time doing social things that I didn't really want to do and hanging on to friends I didn't really like just so I didn't have to be alone. Now, I know a lot of people with childhood PTSD have the opposite problem, and I've been in that camp too, isolating and avoiding social interactions. So if I had one year to recover, I'd cut down my relationships to just the ones that involved no pining on either person's part, no one using the other person to fill up the seat next to them at the movie, and only people where we both truly cared to know and support each other. That's what a friend is. It's somebody who really wants the best for you and shows an interest in that. For me, it would have meant more alone time. And in my years of recovery, I've discovered there's actually so much joy in, in having constructive time alone. Not too much, but some. And to be good at it gives you freedom so that you don't have to like cling and hold on to relationships just because you can't deal with the thought of a weekend alone. A weekend alone can, can be wonderful. You can take trips alone, um, visit museums alone, go hiking alone. You can work alone. You can go to the movies alone. And after the pandemic, actually going to the movies at all is right up there with my great joys. So today I have a family and I love being with them too, but learning to enjoy my time alone has set me up to be free to make choices about being with people or having some joyful solitude, and it makes me happy. So the fifth thing I do is stop spending my money on two things that I was using out of desperation to feel better, therapy and cigarettes. I know, saying therapy is a shocking thing. Let me explain. So first of all, quitting smoking is obvious, right? And I was able to do that after about three years of healing very expensive habit. 
Quitting therapy was counterintuitive, and that happened about the same time. I realized that therapy is really helpful and often even life-saving to people on this channel. If you've watched my videos, you've heard my own story about how for me personally, talking about my trauma in therapy was dysregulating and emotionally and neurologically destructive. And after trying out 11 different kinds of therapy over the years, it was the daily practice where I can write my fearful and resentful thoughts that set me free from the life I was living stuck in my narrative, you know, with looping and looping on the bad things that had happened to me and waiting and waiting for some kind of better mental state to just kick in. In therapy, that better feeling never came. In the daily practice, which happens to cost nothing, it was like the sky opened. And the daily practice, you know, I just had to do it over again. That's all. All I had to do was repeat, repeat, but it was always in my hands to do that. So when I started having that way to kind of release all the intense emotion of having CPTSD, all the losses, all the struggles, everything started to calm down. So that allowed me to stop smoking. And about the same time, I was able to transition easily out of therapy. And then I saved thousands and thousands of dollars. So if I had it all to do over again, I would have magically found the daily practice much earlier in my life. I would have gotten rid of the cigarettes much earlier. I would have completed my therapy much earlier and I would take all that money I spent and I'd put it in tech stocks and now I'd be a jillionaire. Oh well. <laughs> Sixth thing I would have done um, if I had it all to do over again. And no one ever told me this back then, but it's strong exercise. It is so good for re-regulating. It's good for calming emotions. And who'd have guessed? It's good for your heart, your lungs, your muscles, and pretty much everything in life. So now that I exercise, I have so much more confidence in the world. I feel prettier. I feel healthier. I feel younger, even though I'm way older than I was back in those days when I did not exercise. Okay, the seventh thing I'd do if I had it all to do over again, I'd stop all the negative stuff in my life, starting with my own trash talking of other people and their opinions, their religion, their politics, their taste in food, their music, their choice of partners, <laughs> pretty much everything. And I would instantly challenge myself on all my negative beliefs that require black and white thinking. And you know, that you know, these people are good, those people are bad, this person's perfect, this person's evil. <laughs> and I'd completely embrace the understanding I have now that everything is complicated and we're all working out a way to do the best we can. And I'd quit being so judgmental. <laughs> I'd quit telling people how they should change. I'd stop putting myself down. I'd delete all the music I used to listen to that was about death and heartache and revenge and being crazy and getting betrayed and self-pity. Or I'd delete most of that music anyway. I mean, some of it's kind of good, right? <laughs> but I know that it affected me in a bad way. I know that it can be trauma triggering just listening to music about despair. The eighth thing that I do is I'd be a better friend. I'd go to people's weddings when they invited me. I'd call them back when they called. I'd accept them and not abandon them just because I was triggered or busy. And the ninth thing is I'd be a good worker. It took me so long to learn this. When you take a job, your job is to make the boss and the organization successful, period. And I used to make everything so much about my feelings and how I was treated, which sometimes was awful. And the jobs where it felt like that, where that's what I was experiencing, those are the jobs that I was supposed to leave, but I didn't. 
I hung on to those jobs and just kept waiting for other people to change. And I complained and I talked behind people's backs about it, but I stayed and stayed and I regret that. So that's something I would do differently. I would move on to a job more aligned with my own values, my own abilities and my goals. And then I would enjoy like doing my very best. I love doing my best. That's a very happy thing actually. Tenth thing I do, and I'm happily married now, so this one is moot now, but I, it would have changed my whole life if I'd have learned this earlier. If I were single and I had one year to heal, I would learn to date. I never knew how to date. I thought that dating was just finding yourself all in an emotional bond with somebody because you already had sex with them. And there was a mutual attraction that drove you to that. And then retroactively, you would try to change them into the person that you were hoping they were in the first place. No, it turns out dating is supposed to be a getting to know you process with people to see if they might be someone with whom you'd later want to become committed to. And in my case, I knew that I wanted marriage. I always knew this is what I wanted but you wouldn't know it by who I dated or how I handled myself in those relationships. My confusion around this was from my childhood hurts, but the trauma that bad relationships brought into my life was probably even worse than the trauma from childhood. And worse, even than that, I caused other people to suffer. So I'd completely change that if I had to heal in a year. Zip, you know, done, goodbye. <laughs> So that's my 10 things. And if you are in my courses, you've done this type of exercise before because I'm all about how good it feels to face the truth, even when you thought it would be terrible. And then to take really practical steps to make changes. So you deserve those changes. You deserve a good life. If you wanna write your 10 things down, I made the worksheet and I put the link below where you can download it. I'm not checking your homework. This is just so you can try this exercise and see if it inspires you and helps you make a map of and dream big about your next steps. It's not a crazy goal to change your life in a year. Some parts of your healing are gonna take longer, of course, but if you're ready and you're willing to do what it takes, jump in. There's so much that can start feeling better quickly. You probably already know what to do. And if sticking with your resolutions or your intentions to change is hard for you, one thing you can do is get support. One way you can do that is to become a member of Crappy Childhood Fairy. Membership is the inner circle and you get access to all my courses, my monthly webinars, um, the group coaching calls I lead twice a week that are just for members, and an incredible group of fellow travelers, people, men and women that, who take part in our secret Facebook group, supporting each other, organizing daily practice calls at different times throughout the day, just enjoying friendship with people who understand what it's like to have CPTSD and who are walking the same positive path of healing that you are. So you don't have to accomplish everything you write on your list of 10 things that you would do if you had only a year to heal. But doing the exercise might energize you to stay on the good path and open your mind to what's really possible for you. Everything is possible for you. Childhood trauma is a thief of your mental focus, your confidence, your energy, your love, but you deserve to recover those things. They're yours. Recover what is yours. Be bold and become your full and real self at last. You're beautiful. You are real. Don't let anybody tell you that it has to take forever for you to become fully real and fully beautiful as you were meant to be. You were born for this. You're made to heal. This is your birthright and you've already come this far. So be proud of yourself. I love you and I'm so proud of all you have done to recover and bring 
your love and your light to this world. We need you. I've learned a lot about healing past trauma by observing people who are trying to change their lives and watching who moves forward and transforms their personalities and their relationships and their material success in the world, and then watching who does not. And I got to meet a lot of people who were working on themselves because I was in 12-step rooms for decades. And I had periods where I was willing to go to any lengths. I was doing all the work. And then I had these other times where I really didn't do it. I couldn't do it. I didn't have it in me. I would shrink from it. And I would just sort of go along and talk the right talk, but, you know, just do the least amount of work. In my case, it was usually because I was into some relationship that wasn't really compatible with my healing is dragging me down, or because I just wanted people to think I had it all together. So I made excuses for the problems I was having, all the conflicts with people, all the financial problems, all the relationship chaos. So if you're not moving forward, I know what that's like. But then I did move forward, and that's what I teach here for anyone who's ready to face the problems honestly and see where they might be resisting what's right, what's in their best interest to make their lives better. So I want to share with you a list of six excuses that I hear all the time that I've made myself. And excuses, they're like cement shoes, okay? So if you recognize them, you know there's a big opportunity for you to get free and heal and change your life. You don't want these cement shoes anymore, right? Number one, the first one is what I call kicking the can down the road. I first need to do X, then I'll do Y. And it's an artificial sequence, right? Often people will put giant projects between where they are now and where they want their life to be. Like, I'll start eating healthy once things stop being so stressful. I'll do it then. It'll get better then. I'll leave this terrible relationship once I get my sanity back. I hear that a lot. That's a really dangerous fallacy. You're actually not going to get more sane in a terrible relationship. You're going to get ground down. So it's going to be much more difficult for you to leave the longer you stay. You'll often see people sabotaging their goals with some foolish action, something that really sets them back. Like they want to go back to school, but then they go into debt and then they can't afford to go to school. Or they want to get into a relationship, but then they hook up with some crappy ex and get all emotionally like wrecked about it or spend six months kind of, you know, emotionally latched onto this thing that's not going anywhere. They're not going to get into that great relationship they were hoping for, not in that year. The second one is what I call getting on a high horse, you know, where, where you're thinking, you know what, I'm not like all those shallow normies, like I have to suffer. And you get this like with, I'm an artist, or I can't be expected to work full time, or I can't really care for my responsibilities because I'm just so, you know, hurt or so creative. It's a superiority over other things. High horses, nobody likes them, and they don't help you solve your trauma. The third one is the straw man. Do you know what a straw man is? It's like this artificial entity where you can put all the blame and you go, well, I can't change because they, you know, this situation is completely holding me back. But it's kind of a fake thing, right? Or it's something where you're sort of constructing it as this big obstacle, but the obstacle may not be as big as you think. So this would be something like, you know, the problem is with the system. It's rigged against people like me. Um, it's capitalism, it's patriarchy, it's the diet culture. People are idiots that they have this religion or this political view and so on. But staying stuck and blaming it entirely on outside entities and people is, it's an excuse. It's an excuse to not change. 
And it'd be so great if you could honestly say that change was impossible because of this issue or that the group of people make it impossible for you because then they all you have to do is get them to change and you'd be fine. But that's not how it is. A, they're not going to change. And B, even if they did, you would still have your sort of trauma symptoms. You'd still have the things inside that are limiting you. So you might not ever be rich. You might not ever have a career of your dreams. But I guarantee you, if you can face and work on what is holding you back in here and in here, you can change. People can make positive transformations under all kinds of circumstances. They do that when they're poor. They do it when they're incarcerated. They do it when they have to live in hiding. Yes, there are huge obstacles and disadvantages and life is not fair. But every person, including you, is capable of great things based on where you are right now. For each of us, the job is finding how in the environment in which we find ourselves, with the strengths and the weaknesses that we have, with the cards we've been dealt, what can we strive for? Can we move forward? Because we can. We can blossom despite everything. All right, the fourth one I call collapsing. This I give up. I can't do things like this job or this conversation or this obligation or this relationship where I promised someone I'd help them, but now I'm tired. Tiredness is a huge form of collapse. And as you know, tiredness has a lot to do with choices that you make. And yes, I know some people have health conditions, chronic fatigue or cancer or long COVID or even worse things. And that's another story, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Even when you have illnesses like that, it still requires taking care of yourself and maximizing your energy to the best of your ability. So there's no scenario where people with CPTSD really can get away with trashing their bodies and sacrificing their energy and their motivation. It hits us harder than people who didn't have huge trauma. We can prevent a lot of the health risks that are correlated with trauma, but it means really, really taking care of ourselves. Sleep, healthy food, and exercise. Those are the basic building blocks. If you're doing those things, you don't have to be perfect, but if you can do them at 80%, wow, then you can get to work on the emotional reasons that you sometimes collapse. When you have that together, you can start to look at the outside reasons you sometimes collapse. But it's got to start in here. People who are quite ground down inside are not in a good position to change the world or change other people or make things better. It starts here. So maybe you were trying to put yourself out there and it brought up a lot of fear. Or maybe you're really vulnerable to criticism and you don't have the kind of friends who help you keep criticism in perspective. You know, it's cool. It's just one person. It's okay. I get that. Maybe you let problems pile up and pile up and it's too hard to face the mountain of problems, but there's a way forward and it's, it's not through escaping into substances or the internet or anger or isolation. It's a day-by-day -day process of showing up, doing the good things that keep you feeling okay, doing the work to keep a community of supportive people around you. I know it's easier said than done, but it's doable. And using the tools that help you do all that one day at a time, 12-step groups. Um, you can use my daily practice. It's a free technique set of techniques. Save my life. I teach it to everybody. It's a free course. It's down in the description section under every video I make. It's in the on the free tools page of my website. Please go find it. Check it out. You can come to free calls with me once you've signed up. We do the techniques together. I answer questions. It's a great way we can meet each other. You can also join my membership if you want. But... If you're trying to change these behaviors where 
you're making excuses for changing your life. These are the areas where you might be getting bogged down. Okay, the next one is magical thinking. This is where you decide to believe that some bad situation you've created in your life, it's just happening to you. Bad things do just happen sometimes, but I'm talking about the things you actually chose, which becomes especially clear if the same bad thing happens again and again. Have you been there? I have. The abusive work environment, the emotionally avoidant partner, for example. Your trauma may be driving you to these patterns, but the pattern isn't going to change until you change it. So try to notice if you're making excuses for your patterns. What you hear people saying is, um, I'm just unlucky or I'm cursed. I used to say that. I really thought it too. I'm like, I'm cursed. You know, everything I touch just turns to crap. I saw later it was me. <laughs> or you believe that the problem is that you attract people who hurt you, you know, narcissists, manipulative people. The problem isn't actually who is attracted to you. It's who you are attracted to. It's who you let into your life, who you get into a relationship with. When you can't detect who somebody is or you get in so fast that you don't realize till too late what they're like, that was you. That was you, okay? And you take your power back when you admit, I keep being attracted to narcissists versus they just find me. I don't know why. All right. The next one is what I call fatalism. Fatalism is when you believe that something has to be that way. It's inevitable. And in traumatized people, it shows up as my parents abandoned me. So I always end up with people who abandon me. And yes, it's absolutely true that the pattern of childhood tends to show up as your pattern in adult relationships tends to, but you can change that. It's not inevitable. It's, it's actually when you have perspective on it and you've been working on it, you can see every time where you ignored the red flag and you walked right in anyway. There is, there's this little moment where you can change how you do that. You actually have the power to do that. So watch out when you explain your problems this way, as if there's a direct cause and effect that you play no role in. My parents made me like this. I'm like this. I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm an empath. And even calling yourself an adult child of an alcoholic, all of that, the labeling of yourself, it's just a way of sort of um, giving up on all your potential to be different, to be not so affected by what happened to you as you are right now. You have that potential. You're a fully feeling, fully capable human being. You're working to heal the effects of the past and become yourself. What happened to you is not your identity. When you keep focusing on that identity, those abusive events or the neglect, it's a distraction. You know, believing that is distracting you. It's a coping mechanism that's making it so you don't have to focus on the problems right in front of you. The way you might be isolating and avoiding your own life, the way you might not be taking responsibility or you're pushing people away with emotions you haven't yet learned to regulate, or you're living as if somebody is somehow coming to save you. That's really common. You need to save you. I know it's sad, but it's true. You need to save you. And you can do that by facing the problems and looking for the parts of those problems where your own trauma-driven thinking or dysfunctional choices have played a part. You can focus on those, not because you're bad, but because this is the only part of life where you really do have power in yourself in present time. 
Okay, the last big excuse, it's really a whole category of excuses, and it's what's known as spiritual bypass. And the people who do this are sometimes religious, they're sometimes spiritual, sometimes they're against religion and spirituality, or their ideology is a religion. You know, it could be like a political belief, but they get so locked in that they cannot see reality. And this is stuff like, I'm exactly where I need to be right now. It's, or it's all good. Or if it's meant to be, it'll happen. Or God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I particularly hate that one because I've lost people to suicide. So it's just patently true. Well, I don't think God gives you those circumstances, but people frequently end up with things they can't handle. That happens. So I consider that a spiritual bypass. A lot of spiritual bypass, what it really is, is encouraging words that are meant to lift you up and keep you going when things are tough, but they can be used to pretend that you have no agency. They can be used to just make an excuse, I just can't do anything about this. Any belief system can be used by you or people who want to exploit you to put up with crap. So doctors who tell you your trauma symptoms are all imagined, that's a belief system of theirs. Therapists who tell you that the fact you're still miserable after two years is because you just need to feel your feelings or grieve or whatever, and you're like, I don't know, I've been crying every day for years. That's a spiritual bypass. That's not dealing with the reality of the situation. You need and deserve to feel happier, to feel more ease and comfort right now. So don't BS around with other people's excuses and don't make your own. Healing is possible when you can recognize your own symptoms and then work on ways to soften them. When you can recognize your own self-defeating behaviors and work on ways to change them. You don't have to do it all at once. Sometimes you just pick the one that's causing the most problems for you and start there. Now it's true that sometimes the things that are making you unhappy are going to take a lot of effort to change. But luckily, no matter where you're stuck or what's going on in your life, it's possible to lift your mood right now. And that is worth doing, don't you think? That's what I'm going to show you. These are simple strategies you can use whenever you're in a bad place, you know, dysregulated, angry, depressed. You can feel it in your body and you're feeling like you just can't pop out of it. Now, sometimes there's no reason for feeling bad. Maybe you're in an emotional flashback or it's hormones or you're tired. What I'm teaching you doesn't depend on knowing what's the cause. You don't have to solve that problem, even if you know what it is. It's possible to push your mood up two or three notches and still be your real self and not lose track of the problems in your life because at some point you'll want to solve them. And you can get into the habit of feeling better so that you don't have to go through all these steps to getting there every time you want to feel better. It'll be more your natural state or easier to get there. And that would make life easier, right? The first thing to do is to get up an hour earlier than you normally would. Even though this might leave you a bit tired in the afternoon, it's a good way to reduce the stress that makes morning such a vulnerable time for overwhelm and discombobulation and depression. When you get up early and you get out of bed, you're freeing yourself from both hurrying to get out of the house, big CPTSD trigger by the way, and immobilization where you stay in bed for too long after you wake up, which is like a big open door for depressed emotions. So get up an hour earlier than get up out of bed. And yeah, you're going to be tired. All right. Tiredness is not an emergency. You can get a hot beverage if you enjoy that. I personally am a coffee person. Not everybody is. And then you can get on to the second thing I'm going to recommend to you to feel better, which is to do some writing. 
Now, some people write in their journals, I teach techniques that help you get your anxious and depressed thoughts out of your head and onto paper. That happens to be very important to me because I often wake up in an emotional flashback or wake up worried about things. So if you want to learn about that technique, uh, there's always a link under my videos. It's called the daily practice and it's right down there in the description section beneath this video. When you can get the fear and resentment out of your head and onto paper, it gives your mind a little vacation and Fear and resentment can't color all your thoughts like they ordinarily would. And don't forget to release those thoughts after you write them or actually ask your higher power, if you have one, to take them from you, to remove them. These are the thoughts that drive the hamster wheel of doom in your mind. The hamster wheel of doom, the worries, the grudges. And with less of that, you have more mental and emotional fresh air to be yourself and to just have a good day. All right, the third thing that you can do to feel happier and lift your mood is to meditate. Now I meditate for 20 minutes twice a day. If you can even do five minutes, that would be a very positive thing to do. Not everybody feels like they can meditate, but you don't have to worry about doing it well. Um, I don't necessarily mean anything difficult. You don't have to sit a special way. You don't have to have an empty mind or focus on your breath or, or avoid thoughts. You just rest with your eyes closed, maybe with a mantra. A mantra is a simple word like, okay just okay, just a very simple releasing, undemanding word that helps remind you that you're meditating. You can learn a simple meditation in the free course that I mentioned, the daily practice. I've got a little tutorial there and uh, some music you can meditate to the first time you do it. A lot of people, I hear them criticize themselves and say, you know, I can't really meditate. I think so much. And that's precisely why we meditate. First, it's natural to think that's what your mind is for. And having an active mind can be a good thing you know, but we need to give that mind a rest sometimes because the dysregulation of complex PTSD, it is in your mind and it's, it's a, it's a brainwave thing. And you can consciously start teaching yourself to calm and re-regulate your brainwaves. So we just give it a nice rest, take off all expectation that it'll be perfect and accept that thinking is natural. You don't have to be good at meditating to start meditating. In fact, who should start meditating? People who are not yet good at it. You just start where you are. And writing fears and resentments on paper beforehand, like we just talked about, will reduce the mental chatter that's making meditation difficult. All right, the fourth thing for lifting your mood is to go outside and exercise hard if you can. Now, there was a time when I had acute PTSD. And if you've ever heard my story, there have been a couple times in my life where some really traumatic things happened in adulthood and my sadness and the childhood PTSD symptoms were coming on strong and I could barely work or hold a conversation. My mind was just really stressed and scattered. My body was in like full adrenal freak out several times a day. Every time I passed this place near my house where I had found someone dead actually. And every time that the adrenaline would whoosh through me and my heart would pound, my thoughts would fly back to the memory of what happened and how I did CPR for 20 minutes and couldn't save this person. This was someone I cared about. And so this PTSD reaction had been going on for months and I happened to see a doctor and she said, well, gosh, how many times a day are you having these freakout episodes you're telling me about? And I said, oh, you know, not that much, maybe, you know, 10 or 15 times, maybe 20 times a day. She was just like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to start putting you on some medication to stop that. It's really, really unhealthy for you. But I didn't want to do that. And so I told her, I'll do that, but hold on, let me go do some research and see if I can make it stop by myself. I really didn't want to take medication because 
something so wonderful that happened earlier when I first got my daily practice in that uh, never having a clear mind and always being depressed all of a sudden had come together and I felt like my brain chemistry had finally sort of come to a good place. And so even though I was traumatized again, I was really scared of disrupting the progress that I'd made before. So I went online and I researched what does a person do if they can't stop going into panic mode all day. And one thing suggested was go exercise hard. And it was so effective. I can't believe the doctor never mentioned this, but I figured it out for myself. Now, what does exercising hard mean? It can be different depending on what you're used to doing or what your, your strength level is, but you wanna get your heart rate up for at least 20 minutes. If you're able to run, run. And if that's a little more than you can do, take a brisk walk for 20 minutes. If you can walk for an hour, that's good too. And when you're in the middle of a life crisis, especially, try going in nature. Walk till it tires you out. If you're not able to walk, do what you can to get your body moving and your heart rate gently up for a while. If you can do that outside, even better. You probably have had the experience of how good this feels, the endorphins, the high. If you can start doing that every day, it's gonna to start to move your mood. Number five is to do any of these exercises we're talking about outside or do anything outside. Outside is where the sun is on us. Or even if it's bad weather, our brains like to know, like what time of year is it? What time of day is it? And so being outside helps us get calibrated and feel normal in our bodies helps us belong to the planet Earth. We feel hungry at, at the right time. We feel sleepy at the right time. These are some of the benefits of seeing the sun and moving around outside. Things like normal sleeping and normal eating aren't always easy for traumatized or depressed people, but this can help nudge you in the right direction. And of course, daylight's really helpful to move that depression away, to cue your brain and talk to your nervous system and coax it into normal rhythms. Also, if you're going to walk or run, it can really be nice to do it instead of on a treadmill, to do it on a natural surface, like, like a, 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 on the street and sidewalk with the up and down of the curbs, or on a dirt road where there's a slight unevenness, some pebbles, because our brains like that too. It, our brains like to sense those changes in the surface and figure it out. So much of what's going on with complex PTSD, especially when we're struggling, in our mood or feeling physically deadened. It's like we don't have our head together. There's dysregulation going on in the brain. This is a really normal symptom after childhood trauma for, that adults go through, um, affecting your whole nervous system and your emotions. So dysregulation makes everything harder, clunkier, but we all instinctively know how to re-regulate. It's not always easy when you're feeling stressed and sad and when you have underlying complex PTSD, but the techniques I'm teaching you will help you get re-regulated faster and stay regulated more of the time. All right. Number six is to do your movement in a group if you can. Movement together with other people, and I know other people are really triggering, but if you can do it together, following verbal instructions like like in kickboxing, which I happen to really like, or Zumba, or something where an instructor is calling stuff out, right, left, right, left. Anything where we're hearing and responding with our bodies to the left and right cues accelerates your recalibration and the re-regulation of your brain and brings you out of that PTSD fog that can be so tangled up in your depression. Crossing the center line of your body helps, and doing any of this in a group for reasons they don't totally understand, magnifies the benefit, all right? Number seven is to eat some protein with every meal. Overeating and particularly sugar and carb addiction are very strongly connected to childhood PTSD. 
A lot of breakfast foods like, I don't know, toast, donuts, cereal, that kind of thing. It's pure fast carbs and carbs will kind of take your energy and lift it up and then make you very tired. And that leads to depression too. Anything that's making your endocrine system spike and then go down, up, down, tends to be triggering for PTSD too and, and for moods. So a little quick piece of advice is make sure you're eating protein with your meals, even if you're eating it with carbs. So instead of just having toast for breakfast, for example, have some eggs on toast, add that protein to the meal. It just helps to keep it a little more balanced and less triggering for the childhood PTSD symptoms that are often driving the depression. If sweets and high carbohydrate foods tend to trigger overeating in you, you might wanna take the food sensitivity quiz that I've linked in the description section below. There happens to be a very good way of eating to help with that carb sensitivity and I follow it myself and you can find out about it with that link. But calming that carbohydrate addiction is very powerful for calming dysregulation. That's my experience. Also with CPTSD, it's really easy to start the day with the sense of overwhelm. And the sense of overwhelm is familiar for a lot of us and it can really scatter your focus and make you feel worse because it's hard to get anything done. So this is number eight, to get out of overwhelm and work deliberately on good, useful activities for yourself and the people around you. It can be good to make a list. For me, every morning after I meditate, I make a list of things that I'd like to get done, the most important things I'd like to get done that day. Now, I know that there is a lot of stuff on my list that I'm not gonna get to today and possibly ever, but I go ahead and put them on the list. And then I try to zero in on what are the three most important things for me to get done that day. The three most important things might still be an impossible list. So in that case, I go in and I go, what's the one most important thing? I just get the hardest thing out of the way so that I can eliminate the sense of dread that comes with having a hard thing ahead of me during the day. Maybe it's, I don't know, a phone call I'm not looking forward to making because it's embarrassing or I'm gonna hurt somebody's feelings. Or maybe it's just something that's gonna be really hard and take a lot of focus. I do tend to avoid that. So I just go ahead and get it out of the way. Number nine, this one is kind of special. But if you just want to get your spirits up, fight the urge to talk about anything negative. We've been conditioned, if we're feeling bad about something, to talk to as many people as possible. Especially if you're a woman and people go, hey, how are you doing? And it's like, oh gosh, this thing is going on and it's so hard. And if you want to change your mood, I just encourage you to try something different and experiment with not talking about it. Don't talk about the thing that's bothering you. Keep your focus on where you're trying to go on the stuff that's positive for you. Now, I don't mean categorically never talk about what's bothering you, because sometimes it's purposeful to talk to somebody about something that's bothering you. Of course you should do that, but just generally try experimenting with not talking about the thing that's bothering you all the time and in every situation where you think of talking about it, and you'll be surprised how easy it is to have your mood start going in a completely new direction when you're not constantly reminding yourself how upset you are about something. Number 10, there's a question to ask yourself, what am I avoiding? And a lot of times a depressed mood is really just a sense of dread about a thing you're avoiding. Could be something like you're avoiding learning about something that you know you need to, to know in order to work effectively, or you're avoiding a person that you really ought to be paying attention to. You might be avoiding a task that you need to do and it's bothering you. Now I'm sure you've noticed avoiding things can ruin all your free time while you think about doing it or not doing it. Should I do it? I ought to, I, I didn't do it on, you know, so you can write, 
what am I avoiding? Make a list and see if you can find the next right action for you to take there to give yourself that good feeling of accomplishment, knowing that you're taking care of your life, not avoiding it. And finally, this is like the cherry on the sundae. If you really want to have a good day, find something kind that you can do for somebody where they won't even find out who did it for them. If they find out, you forfeit. You don't get the point. You have to find something else that day. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because if there's any chance that we're going to be thought of as a great person for doing this good deed, sometimes it can sort of pollute the beneficial effects of doing a kindness for someone. You're doing this this time for your own happiness. And if it helps someone else, all the better. You can call somebody who you know is having a hard time, for example. You can put your neighbor's empty trash cans back in their driveway after pickup. You can put a few quarters in someone's parking meter when you see that it's expired. If you can't afford to pay for other people's parking, you can give someone a kind word and you can just say, you're doing a great job. Or you can compliment them and say, you know, the way that you just explained that was so clear. Be real with them. Like, don't lie. Don't make stuff up. If it's appropriate to put a hand on their shoulder, though, when you say something like that can make your words very powerful. The point is to pay attention to what other people have done that's deserving of a compliment and just give that to them. And when you do that, you become an agent of good, which is really what you're made for. Life feels really good when you remember this and you remember it by acting like it, even when the motivation isn't really there at first and you're just going through the motions. Even when you're sad, the good things you do could make a big impact on someone else who's suffering. Have you ever had somebody come back and tell you that? You know, you said this thing a couple years ago and you're thinking, I don't even remember saying that. So it's a good thing that you had good on your mind when you did it. So that counts. <laughs> it counts when someone tells you that. When you encourage someone and you witness their spirits come up, your spirits can't help but come up too. All right. So those are my tips for turning your day around and having a great day, no matter what's going on. Something we don't talk about much here is poverty and the poverty mindset. Some people fall into it as a result of problems in their lives. They get mentally stuck in a way that blocks them from taking the steps necessary to get back on their feet financially. And some people grew up poor. I grew up poor. At first, my family wasn't poor, but my parents' alcoholism and the crazy 60s lifestyle made us poor. And that's the kind of poverty that doesn't get talked about, the kind that's caused by parents in a dysfunctional family. And this is more than material poverty. It's also a mindset that maybe you inherit from your parents. You know, money is the root of all evil. Uh, functional families are just all conformist. People who have money are greedy and selfish. Employers are always out to exploit their employees. Do you have these influences on your thinking from the past? These are what I call trauma-driven beliefs. And though there is sometimes a kernel of truth in them, really what they are is self-justification that you learned from people who were supposed to be caring for your emotional and material needs, but didn't. So having sufficient money is freedom. It's so important. And yet for people who had a rough childhood, a lack of money is so common. The truth is if you grew up neglected or with parents who were driven by their own trauma, they may not have told you how to act, what to say, how life works, things you need to know to get out of poverty mindset and into financial sturdiness. So my letter today is, is from a woman I'll call Esty, and she writes, Hi Anna, I'm 25 years old and I have CPTSD from growing up in a dysfunctional family. 
I've stopped going to therapy and use more spiritual practices in my daily life in combination with healthy habits and tools from years of therapy. All right, I'm circling things I want to come back to with my fairy pencil, and I'm going to read Esty's letter all the way through, and then I'll come back and talk about it. The struggle racking around in my brain that I cannot seem to find an answer to about is this. What to do after childhood trauma when it comes to breaking the cycle of poverty and learned helplessness? Feeling as though there are barriers to success and getting out of financial struggling. Cleaning up the mess of earlier adulthood when I made poor financial decisions when it came to credit cards and debt and wasting money on buying things I could never afford as a kid, like nice clothes, good food, good products, etc. I'm trying to damage control these mistakes I made, but feel trapped because I cannot find higher paying work based on my skills and lack of education. I've implemented tools like budgeting and cutting my expenses down, but I still feel really pressured financially. I know for certain that I've lived in survival mode all these years. I've worked my butt off in restaurants and have management experience, but I don't have a college education or any type of trade school or certifications. The time outside of work I spent resting from burnout or focusing on some fairy tale relationship I was trying to create with the wrong partners. I feel as though I'm trapped in a cycle of going back to entry-level jobs related to the food industry, and I feel deeply dissatisfied and disappointed that I have not graduated from college at this point in my life. I try to be gentle with myself and remember that I really have only been really as free from CPTSD symptoms for the past three-ish years, and that before that I was working diligently to heal myself to be able to go to college and obtain more for myself. Having to pay bills, fix my financial damage, and keep some kind of roof over my head um, has been extremely stressful in that all I have is myself to depend on and, and that I have never had help from family members or anything financially. I recognize now that I'm in more control of my life and have left a job where it was similar to a dysfunctional family system, and I was burning myself out for whatever reason. I think wanting to keep the I'm so strong and not lazy narrative and not wanting to be seen as a loser from others. I'm open to what is going to serve my life in a healthy way to the best of my abilities. However, I think I'm coming to terms with the fact that I am at a starting point where I'm finally ready to go to school and commit, but four years seems like a, an unpredictably large amount of time, and I worry about having housing and being able to meet my needs and bills and afford school. I'd like some discussion on these talking points as I feel so many can benefit from a positive discussion about this. Okay. Esty, what a great question, and I'm so glad you asked. And uh, this is an area of, of life where I've struggled and I've had healing, and I haven't talked about it that much. Um, so I'm really glad you brought it up. So let's see, you're 25 years old, you dysfunctional family. You did years of therapy, and now you've stopped. And actually, that is one of the financial things that can help so much. Sadly, therapy costs a lot of money. <laughs> and if you have money problems, it can keep you in money problems. And so it would have to be incredibly effective to be worth it for that. And often it's not. So you've gotten quite a bit out of it already. And now you're, you're doing other things. Spiritual practices, good for you. Healthy habits, good for you. You watch YouTube videos. And um, 
Now you want to work on the cycle of poverty and learned helplessness. You get so used to being stuck that you stay stuck. It's all you know. It feels scary to do anything different. So that is so something that happens to people who had trauma. And it's definitely something that can happen with growing up poor. And especially when your parents were sort of indoctrinating you with this negativity towards success, earning, participating, being middle class, you know, anything like that. Um, and I got a bit of a dose of that. And I, ha I had to do conscious work to get free of it and go, it would be good to have money, actually. There's no shame in that. <laughs> and to get to the point where I was somebody who could ask for a raise. That's, you know, there's a lot of clearing that you need to do to get to that point. All right, so let's see. You made poor financial decisions as a young adult. You got a credit card and um, bought money of things that you couldn't really afford, but they were things you couldn't have as a kid. I totally get it. And you're trying to do damage control. I'm going to talk about that debt in just a minute. Budgeting, cutting expenses down, but still feel pressured. Yeah, it's, you know, there's... When you're in an entry-level job or a food service job and you're in debt, it is a high pressure situation, but you will not be the first person to get out of it, okay? We're, we're gonna talk, talk you through this. You can get out of this. It's gonna be a big change, and I want you to try to think of this as something that's gonna be fun. And this is, you know, you, you're just so not alone with this. So many people have gotten into this predicament. So you've been in survival mode, you've worked in restaurants, you really want a college education, I hear that. So what's interesting to me, I, I don't know, your letter never said what you want to do with that education, it's just the idea of college. I'm going to throw a little wrench in your thinking here and just say, I don't know, is college essential for you to get on your feet? I think it might not be, not yet anyway, there's time for college and I totally understand that when you're in your, in your 20s that would be the common time to go to college. But sometimes being able to make um, a higher wage than you now have is what's going to set you free to study anything at all. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. So you feel trapped. You try to be gentle with yourself. You've only been free from symptoms for three years. I know you're so amazing. You're a miracle. This is so great. You have a job. You're dealing with your problems and trying to fix this, these problems and keep the roof over your head. And yeah, it's stressful. It's stressful. I've been there. I've been there so much. I've been without health insurance. I've, I've like not had an apartment and had to couch surf. <laughs> I've carried heavy debt. I've had, I, I've, I've, I grew up on welfare. You know, I've been through it all. I know what you're talking about. And that's, um, I was traveling recently and I was thinking about how great it is to have enough money that you don't have to fear your car breaking down. Like if it breaks down, there will be something to do. You'll be able to fix it. And I, you know, so many years of my life, like having a tooth break or the car breakdown, it was just catastrophic to being able to function. And those are just two of the things that are just hideously stressful about being poor. So, but I also hear you have a lot of potential. You have a lot of potential. You have these desires. When these desires and this frustration with the way things are show up in your heart, it's often a sign. It's, it's, a, it's like a little seed is putting down roots and it's about to come up and start growing like crazy to propel you to your next stage of life. So yeah, so then you, the, committing to four years, it sounds like a very long time. I agree. Here's what we're dealing with right now in history is a lot, a lot, a lot of people are going into massive debt to get that bachelor's degree, and it doesn't necessarily translate into a job. I think what college degrees do help do is mark you as a member of the middle class, as socially acceptable in jobs. But honestly, well, the way that I've structured my career um, is I, I got a bachelor's degree fairly early on. 
it didn't help me. <laughs> it didn't help me at first. I did learn a lot. It was good. I learned about biology. I learned a lot of technical skills. I studied video production. This was in the 80s. And I moved to Hollywood to go get work. And guess what? It was the 80s and women didn't get work in production. There were a few jobs you could do. Makeup, costume, scripts, which, you know, is hard to break into. Um, you could be a runner. You could be a production assistant. There was not a lot of stuff a woman could do. And I would just say now, I, all my life, I've been watching the names of women show up in the credits of TV and film. And now it's like really populated with women and it's a different time. But at that time, even though I had had, I was like a distinguished student in the production program I was in. I was the first woman producer in my program. I got to LA and I was there two and a half years and I, ne I never got more than office temp work. That's what happened. And it was so discouraging. I just, you know, hit a wall in the world. Now I had some of my own problems. I, because I had been very poor going through school, I was like making pizza, you know, <laughs> doing minimum wage work to get through college. I was working all the time. I could never do internships. And, and that's one of the things that can make college so much more fruitful in terms of getting you employed is if you have the means to work for free for somebody. And that's something like, I really want to give my kids, I'm like, do, do internships, you know, go do the best internship you can. I'll support you for that. Cause I'm in a position, my parents weren't in that position. They also, even if they, when they were in the position, it's just not something they wanted to do. I did have a little money that my, my dad died when I was 15 and I had some social security money that would come every month. And I had some money from him and it lasted for like two years. And in those two years, I got out of high school early. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I, I didn't know where I was trying to go. So I, I, what I know now is it's so important to know like, where you want to go. And most people at 25 don't know yet. And the way you learn that is by trying things. And so I'm a big believer in community colleges that are free or low cost, um, online courses that are free or low cost, and internships that don't pay so that you can go start to experience what different work is like. You have amazing talents in there. And the, the way that they reveal themselves is through an interaction of you and that profession. So you have to get out there and give it a try and get a feel for it. Now, it's funny. I, one thing I regret about my own career path is I would end up sort of wanting to move up in whatever job I got, even if it was just like not a job I really wanted. It was just the only job I could get. So when I left Hollywood, I got a job as an administrative assistant at a medical center. And it was just like, I just needed a job. I just needed a job <laughs> so that I could get out of LA and back to where I wanted to live in the Bay Area. And, uh, and I did that job and it was okay. It was, they were nice people. I did well in that job. But next thing you know, I worked in healthcare for 20 years and that was never my intention. I'm a creative. I was always there like writing, doing stuff on camera. I was doing comedy. Like what I'm doing now finally is consistent with where things were always sort of meant to go with me. But I learned a lot and um, I made a living, but I didn't make a great living. <laughs> you, one thing I've learned about jobs is like if you don't, if you were not born to it, if you were not born to those upper levels and people aren't like introducing you to people who can get you into a higher level on the job, if you don't know how you're supposed to talk, like there were things like when there was an office lunch, I would go out to lunch and I just, there were just, I don't know, I, I felt like a country bumpkin. I did, I'm not from the country, but I just, the way I was raised by, you know, hippies who were really anti-capitalist and stuff, I didn't know 
manners. I just didn't know manners. I didn't know who should talk when and what you should say and what you shouldn't say. And so there were a lot of ways I kind of shot myself in the foot <laughs> and couldn't advance. The other thing is, and I'll tell you that before 30, my CPTSD symptoms were a little, a lot more under control. But nonetheless, um, I've, when I felt slighted on the job, I had a hard time hiding how bad I felt. And there's just sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. If I could go back and change things, I would have learned my daily practice. You know, when I was like 15, when I started really like stuff started getting hard for me. And I would learn how to deal with my hard emotions and I would know where to go. But I hadn't, I just had nothing. I used to, you know, eventually when I was 21, I could afford therapy and they were like, go confront your parents about what happened. That made everything worse. I just spent my 20s like unable to find anything that helped me. It was really scary. And, um, Work was a place that I anchored myself. Having a paycheck was a way that I kept things steady. I could always pay the rent. Um, in my day, they didn't just give you a credit card as soon as you were born. You had to wait. And I think I didn't get one until I was about 29 or something. And then the credit limit was $400 and immediately I hit the limit and I didn't ever pay off that $400 for years and years. And they kept moving the limit up. And I had that kind of like, you know, debt is just like this little sidekick, you know, that comes with me everywhere. And I remember somebody saying to me once, I think that people go into debt sometimes because it locks you down. It keeps you from, you know, you don't have choices anymore. You have to like deal with your debt. You can't just like go back to school or travel or anything. Your debt means that you have to just keep doing what you're doing. And I don't know if you relate to that statement, but when I thought about it, I thought about it over the years, and that's just so true for me. There's a number of self-sabotaging things that I've ever done to myself that function that way. Because when you have choices, it's freaking scary. You know, there's a lot of commitment involved. There's a lot of hard work. You're not going to be able to um, kind of pull back and isolate. As a person with CPTSD, like that's kind of like a safety is a you know it's a it's a little safety zone that you always need you need a place where you can go back to center and like re-regulate yourself and if you ha get into a high responsibility situation you might not have that and i don't know about you but there's this unconscious fear like i'll just shatter i'll shatter if i accept this commitment and i can't i can't like escape and hide so for a lot of people like including myself there's this kind of like love-hate relationship with that part of oneself of wanting to sort of pull back and hide and go into a cocoon and not deal, right? That's, I think that's where a lot of, yeah, that's where a lot of negative behaviors come from is that desire. With CPTSD, there's something to it. You know, it's not just crazy talk. It's something that we need, but it's all about finding like a, a safe and healthy way to get that self-calming that you can get. That's why I teach this da these daily practice techniques and talk about them in every video. Down in the description section, the daily practice free course, a very specific writing technique and meditation technique that do, they help you decompress and process emotions that otherwise would sort of take you out. And that is one of the appeals of, of entry-level jobs is, <laughs> I mean, restaurants are really demanding, but it's, <laughs> It's not as demanding, like you said, as having to go to college and work your way through it, right? It's not as demanding as doing both. So I have kind of a, uh, <laughs> I have kind of maybe a countercultural view though. So I got my bachelor's degree. I managed to keep debt fairly low by never having internships or a life and just working all the time. I paid off my debt in four years and eventually <clears throat> I, I, I did go to uh, grad school. I went to grad school in a topic that I think wasn't really what I wanted to do, but that's who I was around. 
And um, it's, I, have a, I have a master's in public policy, and it's a fancy degree. I don't think I ever really, that was never really the place for me. But I had a feeling at the time, like, I just need that validation. I need to know I can do it. It was hard to get into. It's a prestigious thing to have on my resume. There are certain people in the world who care, but I'm so at the point right now where nobody cares or knows, and I never think about it. But, um, but there, there is the value of education in itself, of rigorous thinking. And, um, you know, when I finished my degree in the late 90s, my master's degree, the internet was really just sort of coming. And when the internet sort of blossomed, and especially when YouTube came out, and I, I am now a YouTuber, but long before I was a YouTuber, I've just been so excited. I think YouTube is the greatest repository of human knowledge ever in the history of anything ever. And anything you want to learn, you know, from repairing a tire to making an apology to healing your childhood PTSD, you can find it here. And if you are focused, and I think that's one reason that we want to go to school and get into debt. I mean, we don't want to get into debt, but we want to go to school is so that somebody will impose on us a curriculum and a schedule and we'll just keep up with it. And there's a lot to be said for that. There's also the status that is conferred by a degree, but less and less, depending on what you want to do, is that the most important thing? People who work in technology, it's often very forgiving of not having that unless, I don't know, there are certain things, certain things in the sciences um, that, that are important for that. <laughs> In video production, which I learned at school, I learned a lot, but 20 years later, after I could not get a job in Hollywood, I started my own production company. And I want to tell you about this because this is one of a couple of turnarounds in my life. Um, the first turnaround was when I had my first kid. All right. I want to show you a picture of me when I had my first kid. <laughs> okay. And when my relationship with my first kid's dad, um, I, I did end up marrying him later than this, but we broke up when my kid was still a, a little baby. We split up and I suddenly need to figure out a way to get some money. And I had been contracting at the time um, and I, I sort of had a job. It was not that long after I got out of grad school, but I wasn't married. Uh, you know, we had just sort of like thrown together this life because I was pregnant and this is both my kid's dad. We did end up getting married. We got quickly divorced and he's remained a good dad. Worst marriage you ever <laughs> saw. But he's remarried now and I'm remarried and we're all friends and everything's okay. So I just, you know, I'm not trying to tell a sob story, but boy, when you have a new kid, don't have a kid, don't have a kid till you're married, okay? This is, this is your opportunity. This is your opportunity to get your life where you want it or a little bit on the way and then have a kid. Okay. And then, and, and I'm going to also give you a little lecture about getting married first. If you want to be poor, have a kid without a partner. That's the number one driver of poverty for women is having children without a partner. Number one driver, more than not having an education, more than your background. It drives, that's, that's the, that's a fact. People don't talk about it, but it's so important to have a partner. If you can, you know, I, I did, I ended up a single mom for nine years. There's no shame in it. I'm just saying, if you have a chance to plan for your life, make this plan for first things first, get married, <laughs> married to somebody really great. I'm talking about that a lot right now this week. When my relationship broke down and I had a, a, a little kid, he was going to help financially, but I, there was no way I didn't make enough money to, you know, keep paying the rent where I lived and support, you know, pay my half of the babysitting money and all of that. I just, I was, it was, it was a disaster and I had to think really fast and I did the math and I, I invite you to do the same thing. Do the math. How much money do I need 
to do to live how I want to live this next couple of years? How much money do I need? And I calculated I needed to make twice as much money, either as a salary or an hourly rate, than I made at that time. I needed to make twice as much. So I was like, that's impossible. I can't make twice as much all of a sudden like that. But I'm telling you, SD, I put my mind to it. I put my mind to it. I got some books. These were books at the time. There's new books, new videos, new resources. Like this is a really common journey and purpose that people have to um, get out of debt. And debt was not my biggest problem then. I just needed income. And I'll get to the debt in a minute. But uh, I needed income. And so I want to show you, here's the picture again of me back when the crisis hit. And uh, I'm that's me right there. And <laughs> And I want to show you a picture of me after I did all this work on myself to double my income. One year later, here I am. And all it is, all it is, is I thought, well, it's not like, I act like, it was just like this little thing. I got a, I got a nicer haircut. I, <laughs> I got, I, I went to Marshall's and I got this $30 really nice jacket. You know, I had a few things like that. I got really cheap clothes that were nice. You know, I, I, I had, I just, that I prioritize that. No more comfort, no more whatever from my old hippie upbringing. You know, I put on some nice clothes and I changed jobs. I used to work at a nonprofit and they would say, oh, we don't have any more money. And so I said, all right, I went and got another job. And I got another job that paid 50% more. And I did that. And then within six months, that it was a dot-com. They went bust. <laughs> that was accelerated. Then I went back to the nonprofit where I used to work. And I said, if you want, you can hire me hourly, but I, it's going to cost this. And they did it. They hired me. Now, when I doubled my rates, I was really nervous that nobody would pay it and I wasn't worth it. But here's what happens. When you charge more for yourself, when you ask for a raise, when you, put, when you present yourself as somebody who earns that much, you become that person. And it's not, it's not smoke and mirrors. Like you have to be somebody who shows up on time, who's really reliable, whose emotions don't get the better of them, who can lead a project. And I live in California, so to have enough money for a mom and kid, like it was... <laughs> And to go do the work and, oh gosh, but I did it. I did it. And when I did it, I was so proud of myself. One of the things that happens when you up your earning like that is you don't have to go backwards again. It would be very rare that you had to go backwards. So I remember, so it was a friend at work. She's, I said, I was thinking of charging this. And she said, no, double it, double it. I'm like, really? Can I? She goes, yes, you can. You're worth it. And once I started charging that, and I remember the employer was like, what, what? Mm, okay. But I had become indispensable. And because I had gone off somewhere else and come back, and I don't, I don't think coming back is always the way. You got to change jobs sometimes. And I think that people who had trauma, like we, we parentify our boss sometimes, or we we make our job into our family. And then we're like, we have the same drama. We're like, I can't leave my family. I'm stuck with my family and you guys don't treat me good. Jobs are not family. They're not family. They're, they're, they're where you work, where you develop yourself and where you earn money. And so the right thing to do is when the job doesn't fit you anymore because it doesn't pay enough or they're not treating you well is to move on. And so you've got to try. You've got to try. And so this was, this was a process that took about a year, but I survived. All right, then. 2008 came along some years later, <laughs> and that's when the housing market collapsed. 
and uh, the whole economy, you know, everyone I knew got laid off. And at that time I was a consultant and everybody who employed me got laid off. Therefore, I didn't have work. And there was this one year where I made about 15% of what I needed to get by. That was the year I met the man who's now my husband. And um, so it was kind of cool. I had his companionship as I tried to figure this out. I was working pretty hard to present myself as not a big walking catastrophe, a single mom with no money. How lovely, right? Marry me. <laughs> but he did. He did. He did after five years. Yeah. So we got engaged after three, but I got my life together um, during that time. There were a lot of things I changed about my life as I returned to my spiritual life. I returned to my daily practice. Uh, I started to read about and cultivate some deeper, more challenging values for myself about right and wrong and setting my life straight because money was the least of my problems back then. Now, right at the time I met him, I had just been through a four-year period where so I had a medical catastrophe. I had a surgery. They were, you know, I had a, my first kid. It was a difficult birth. I had to have a surgery, which I had in like five years later. And it, something went wrong. And there were tons of complications. And I ended up having 14 major surgeries over four years. And I was in and out of the hospital. And I was a contractor. I had health insurance that I paid for myself. And this is like, you know, we're talking about the mid-2000s. And it was $1,800 a month. I just kind of put that out there. It, it was so much of my income. And, <laughs> and I needed it. And I still had co-pays of $3,000 per surgery. And I couldn't work for a month at a time. And I only got paid if I worked. So, you know, my, my financial stability got really stretched thin and, and then 2008 hit. And how I made everything work is credit card debt. I, I told you at the beginning of this video, I had carried a lot of credit card debt. Um, you know, I had never really paid it off since I, in my late twenties when I got my first card. I never really paid it off, but I just ended up getting, I, I bought out my ex-husband when we divorced. All right, I got a home equity line of credit. I bought him out so I could keep the house. And then um, I put, I never missed a payment. I've, I've always been very good about that. I just had to keep the, you know, this is back in the day, zero interest. And they would just send me cards and offers and I would move balances and do all the things that you're not supposed to do. Now, back when I doubled my income, before this, the recession hit, um, I was able to buy a house. I read books. I studied. I saved money. I picked up pennies. I went to the cheapest gas station. I was super duper focused on, on saving money and I was able to buy a house. And this was when they were selling houses. You could put zero, you know, down payment. And I did that. And all I had were closing costs. And I did that. And everything would have been fine except the economy collapsed and there was no work to be had. And for, you know, for a year, practically, I barely had any work. So this is what happened. This is what happened during that collapse is I realized that my consulting work was, was not going to come back all the way and no matter what. And that anyway, I hated it because anyway, I was a creative. I had all this great creativity inside me and I'm here. I like to make videos. I like to teach. I like to talk. So you know what I did? I went and drew back on my video production experience. <laughs> I said, I'm going to start a video production company. I couldn't get a job back in the 90s, but now it was 2008, 2000. Yeah. And I started a company 
And I, I didn't know anymore how to do video. Video had transitioned from, you know, from tape to digital in the meantime, and I didn't know. So I found somebody who could shoot and edit, and I partnered up, and then we got a rate. And then I would just, like, I called everybody I knew, and I convinced them, I can make a video for you. I was desperate. See, desperation can sometimes get us out of our comfort zone and just get us to go try things. And Esty, I'm bringing this back to you to just say, you know, if you... The, the pain that you're feeling is your fuel and it's propelling you to do something new. If you really had to get a job outside of the food service, you could. You could if, if you were, a, you know, you could if you had to. And so, um, so I told everybody about this and I called them and I said, I can make videos for your website. Now this was 2008 and people are like, you can't put a video on a website. I mean, YouTube was like two years old at that time. And I said, you can. And they go, but there's not enough bandwidth they had heard. And I was like, there's going to be, you know, you need a little video. We'll make it very short. We'll make it small. We'll make it low resolution, but it's going to do so much for your website. And also I said, I can make training courses. I knew, I knew all these people in healthcare and I can do education for doctors, for patients. And, and, uh, at first I couldn't get work. And so, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, he said, you know, he knew that I was so stressed and anxious. I'm like, what am I going to do if I can't get some money? And uh, he, he brought me these podcasts. I think they were on CDs or something. This was so, you know, so much has changed. And then they were like, how to make cold calls. So I made a plan. I'm going to make cold calls. It said, make, it said, do your research and make 10 cold calls a day and keep doing that until you have enough work. So I did my research for a day. The next day I made 10 cold calls to people I knew saying, you should, I, I can make videos for you. Three of them hired me. I never had to make cold calls again. How about that? <laughs> I don't think it's that easy for everybody. It was good timing. And then I had a video production company and I'll tell you, it was so hard and so stressful. And I had to do jobs that were just like, bullshit. They were just such a drag. Not, you know, not terrible, but clients who were difficult, hard to get paid. And I just learned, you know, I toughened up. I was like, I'm going to ask for the money. I'm going to hire better people to work for me who I can count on. I'm going to, you know, I'm doing it. I'm in it to win it. Here I go. And so I had a company and I did that and it did very well. I'm really proud of my company. We did a lot of, um, our clients were like Zoom and Kaiser Permanente, and we made videos that I'm really proud of. Those are really good organizations to work for. And, um, and on the side, somewhere in there, I started Crappy Childhood Fairy. It was a little blog I did on the side as a passion project. Now, if Esty, if you could do anything better than I did it, it's like, keep your passion alive. Don't give it up. Don't give it up. <laughs> Keep your passion project alive, even if it's on the side, so that you're developing your skill in that. I was learning how to blog, and then I learned how to be on camera and make videos. I went to Toastmasters. I just kept being like a, a, a perpetual learner, you know, just always trying to learn how to do something that I really wanted to do better. Now, I want to tell you, when you think about college, yes, maybe, um, even though I went to college for video production, what I learned there isn't ultimately what made me able to be a video producer or the crappy childhood fairy. I did learn how to be a good writer in school, and writing is very important to everything I do. But I learned project management from just being in the trenches, you know, of trying to, trying to get people to pay me to get stuff done. And um, so I learned how to manage projects and organize a team and keep clients happy. One of the most important lessons that a person trying to come up in the world at work can do is contain your trauma, contain it, that you need an outlet for it. That's where, why we have 12 step programs. We have buddies in my membership program, but you cannot take it to work. It will hold you back. 
carrying CPTSD symptoms is a barrier to advancement. So that's so much of what we teach here will serve you so well to help you have this place in your life where you bring your best. You know, you can't help it. Your trauma is going to leak into your life sometimes. You know, this happens. Take it from me, <laughs> but less and less. Your job, if you want to be successful working for somebody else, whether they're, they're an employer or they're a client and you're working for yourself. I've, I've, I've been working for myself for t over 20 years. But, you know, your job is to make them successful. The person who pays you, you make them successful. And I now have hired hundreds of people to do video production and crappy childhood fairy work. And I'll just say the people who stick around, you know, they have a real can-do spirit. They, they are, you know, fully fully human people who have strengths and weaknesses, but they are all about like, they're with me on this. We're trying to make it successful. And that's what they're about. And then if they have any kind of personal difficulties, you know, like I'm the most understanding person in the world, but what, what doesn't work in any workplace, including the one that I now manage is people coming in and just being antagonistic towards the mission or towards the boss or towards their coworkers. We can't have that. And unfortunately, I think when we grow up with trauma and especially with the bad attitudes about money that you may have inherited, you know, sometimes there's that. It's like, I ain't working overtime. <laughs> well, I don't want you to be exploited, but there's a difference between exploitation and just not having boundaries. So you learn to have boundaries and then show up with your best and you will advance. You will advance, but you got to be a learner. You can't, I just wouldn't put all your eggs in this idea that college will prepare you to take this big step. So much of the step you're going to take depends on the way that you learn and try things and, you know, read books and watch videos and put, just put yourself out there and try to get a job. I have no idea what your interests are, but one thing I tell young people is learn to edit video. When I started my company, I had to learn to edit video because the first editors I hired were totally undependable. I had to learn and you know how I did it? I Googled it. I Googled it. I learned on Google how to edit videos and, and I passed. I was able to, you know, keep going with my clients and sell videos. I look back at my old work and it's like not that good, but you know, <laughs> it got better, it got better. I learned and um, it was necessity that pushed me. And there's so much you can learn online if you want to. So don't let this idea of college stop you from fulfilling yourself. If education is what you want, or you want to be in a profession that actually requires a college degree for real or a license of some kind, then bake that into your plan. But I think you're right that you might not be ready for that. I just don't advise that you take on $100,000 of debt to do that. That would... That would hold you down for a long time. Learn how you can make $50, $100 an hour doing something that people pay that for and get good at it through alternative means like learning it. And that's, that's what video editing is. You can make $50 to $100 an hour, just saying. And especially if you practice and especially if you get some jobs, some entry-level jobs and work hard at them and do your best and be very reliable. You will get ahead and soon you'll be making more money. So that's just one example. It's one example of a profession that you can get good at and make money. And there are others too, that you don't, you don't necessarily need college. Here's where co uh, people without a college education can be difficult. Um, if you can't write and spell and express yourself in a good customer service way, that's going to cut you out of a lot of jobs. So I really encourage you, if you have any weaknesses in those areas, work on that. So I've talked a lot about how to liberate your career. I know you know the steps about debt. I think one of the great resources, ah, I told you I, about the debt. I ended up with $90,000 of debt, credit card debt. Part of it was carelessness, part of it was medical stuff and divorce and the recession. 
But before I remarried, I decided I want to get out of debt and I worked my butt off and this was making videos and um, I would work sometimes till one in the morning. I don't know if it was so great for me, <laughs> but I got out of debt and I felt really good about that and I've never been in debt again. No more debt. Feels really good. All the money I earn is can be saved. I'm all about saving now. At my age, that's what you want. You want to be saving your money. So I still try to live not too extravagantly and um, put money in savings. So one book I read at the time when I needed to get out of debt, I was just like, how do I do this? I read Dave Ramsey's book, Financial Peace. It's been out since the 90s. It's really solid. And it just, you know, he teaches this thing called the snowball approach to debt. You might know it where you rank your debts in the order of size and you start off with the smallest one. You get, give yourself an early win. You pay the smallest one off first. And then whatever you were paying monthly on that one, you add to the next one, you know, and pay, add, increase your monthly payment. You pay that one off. And I promise you, when you begin to take active steps to get out of debt and to reduce your expenses like you are, I know like it's this college idea where you feel like no matter how good you're doing with the debt, you're not getting anywhere, but you are. When you begin to become conscious about this and paying things down, it can start to feel like a very positive and even fun thing to start dealing with the problem head on and have the satisfaction. I'm paying it down. I'm paying it down. I'm paying it down. And then one day you make your last payment on your debt and it feels good. You are free. And here's the thing about freedom. Now you have responsibility. You have to figure out what you're doing with the rest of your life. So may you have that problem very soon. I love your letter. Um, I, I love talking about this. I want to talk about it more soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.